This is Audible. Reminiscences of the Cuban Revolutionary War by Ernesto Che Guevara Read by Bruno Gerardo For a long time, we have wanted to write a history of our revolution. But the tasks are many, the years go by, and the memory of the insurrection is dissolving into the past. These events have not yet been properly described, events which already belong to the history of the Americas. For this reason, I present here a series of personal reminiscences of the skirmishes and battles in which we all participated. I do not wish that this fragmentary history, based on memories and a few hasty notes, should be regarded as a full account. On the contrary, I hope that those who live through each event will further elaborate. I can best begin with the first battle, the only one Fidel Castro fought in that went against our forces, the surprise attack at Alegría del Pío. There are many survivors of this battle, and each of them is encouraged to fill out the story by contributing what they remember. I ask only that such a narrator be strictly truthful. They should not pretend, for their own aggrandizement, to have been where they were not, and they should be wary of inaccuracies. I ask that after writing a few pages to the best of their ability, according to their disposition and education, they seriously criticize them, in order to remove every word not corresponding strictly with fact, or those where the facts are uncertain. With this intention, I myself begin my reminiscences. Ernesto Che Guevara, 1963 Alegría del Pío Alegría del Pío is an Oriente province, Niquero municipality, near Cape Cruz, where on December 5, 1956, the dictatorship's forces surprised us. We were exhausted. We had landed on December 2nd at Las Coloradas Beach. We had lost almost all our equipment and wearing new boots had trudged endlessly through saltwater swamps. Almost the entire troop was suffering open blisters, but boots and fungal infections were not our only enemies. We reached Cuba following a seven-day voyage across the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea, without food in a poorly maintained boat, almost everyone plagued by seasickness. All this left its mark on our troop made up of raw recruits who had never seen combat. All we had left of our equipment for war was our rifles, cartridge belts, and a few wet rounds of ammunition. Our medical supplies had vanished, and most of our backpacks had been left behind in the swamps. The previous night we had passed through one of the cane fields at the Niquero Sugar Mill. We had managed to satisfy our hunger and thirst by eating sugar cane, but lacking experience, we had left a trail of cane peelings and bagasse. Not that the guards following our steps needed any trail, for it had been our guide who betrayed us. When we stopped to rest the night before, we let him go, an error we were to repeat during our long struggle until we learned that civilians whose backgrounds we did not know could not be trusted in dangerous areas. By daybreak on December 5th, only a few could take another step. On the verge of collapse, orders were given to halt on the edge of a cane field, in some bushes close to dense woods. Most of us slept through the morning hours. At noon, small army and private aircraft began to circle. Some of our group continued peacefully cutting and eating sugar cane, not realizing they were perfectly visible to those flying the enemy planes. I was the troop physician, and it was my duty to treat everyone's blistered feet. I recall my last patient that morning, Compañero Humberto Lamote. It was his last day on earth. In my mind's eye, I see how tired he was as he walked from my improvised first aid station to his post, carrying in one hand the shoes he could not wear. 
compañero Jesús Montané and I were leaning against a tree, talking about our respective children, eating our meager rations, half a sausage and two crackers, when we heard a shot. Within seconds a hail of bullets, at least that's how it seemed to us, this being our baptism of fire, descended on our group of eighty-two men. My rifle was not one of the best. I had deliberately asked for it because I was in terrible physical condition due to a prolonged asthma attack, and I did not want to be held responsible for wasting a good weapon. I can hardly remember what followed. My memory is already hazy. After the initial burst of gunfire, Juan Almieda, then a captain, approached requesting orders, but there was no one to issue them. Later I was told that Fidel had tried in vain to gather everybody into the adjoining cane field, which could be reached just by crossing a boundary path. The surprise had been too great, and the gunfire too heavy. Almeida ran back to take charge of his group. A compañero dropped a box of ammunition at my feet. I pointed to it, and he answered me with an anguished expression which I remember perfectly, and which seemed to say, It's too late for ammunition. He immediately took the path to the cane field. He was later murdered by Batista's henchmen. This might have been the first time I was faced literally with the dilemma of choosing between my devotion to medicine and my duty as a revolutionary soldier. There at my feet was a backpack full of medicine and a box of ammunition. They were too heavy to carry both. I picked up the ammunition, leaving the medicine, and started to cross the clearing heading for the cane field. I remember Faustino Perez on his knees in the bushes, firing a submachine gun. Near me, Emilio Aventosa was walking toward the cane field. A burst of gunfire hit us both. I felt a sharp blow to my chest and a wound in my neck. I thought for certain I was dead. Alventosa, vomiting blood and bleeding profusely from a deep wound, screamed something like, They've killed me! and began to fire his rifle, although there was no one there. Flat on the ground, I said to Faustino, I'm fucked, and Faustino, still shooting, looked at me and told me it was nothing, but I saw in his eyes he considered me as good as dead. Still on the ground, I fired a shot toward the woods. Somebody on his knees shouted that we should surrender, and I heard Camilo Sinfuego shouting, No one surrenders here. Jose Ponce approached me, breathing hard. He showed me a bullet wound that appeared to have pierced his lungs. He told me he was wounded, and I replied indifferently that I was as well. Then Ponce, along with the other unhurt compañeros, crawled toward the cane field. For a moment I was alone, just lying there waiting to die. Almigueda approached, urging me to go on, and despite the intense pain, I dragged myself into the cane field. There I saw the great compañero, Raúl Saures, whose thumb had been blown away by a bullet, being attended by Faustino Pérez, who was bandaging his hand. Then everything blurred, low-flying airplanes strafing the field added to the confusion amid scenes that were at once Dante-esque and grotesque, such as an overweight combatant trying to hide behind a single sugar cane stock, or a man who kept yelling for silence in the din of gunfire for no apparent reason. A group was organized, headed by Almieda, including Commando Ramiro Valdez, in that period a lieutenant, and compañeros Rafael Chao and Ronaldo Benitez. With Almieda leading, we crossed the last path among the rows of sugar cane and reached the safety of the woods. The first shouts of fire were heard from the cane field, and columns of flame and smoke began to rise. But I can't be sure about that. I was thinking more of the bitterness of defeat and the eminence of my death. We walked until darkness made it impossible to go on, and decided to lie down and sleep huddled together in a heap. We were starving and thirsty, 
the mosquitoes adding to our misery. This was our baptism of fire, December 5th, 1956, on the outskirts of Nikiro. Such was the beginning of forging what would become the rebel army. The Battle of La Plata An attack on a small army garrison at the mouth of the La Plata River in the Sierra Maestra produced our first victory. The effect was electrifying and traveled far beyond that rough region. It was like a cult to attention, proving that the rebel army did in fact exist and was disposed to fight. On January 14, 1957, a little more than a month after the surprise attack at Alegría del Pío, we came to a halt at the Magdalena River, which separates La Plata and a ridge beginning in the Sierra Maestra and ending at the sea. Fidel gave orders for target practice. Some of the men were using weapons for the first time in their lives. We bathed there as well, having ignored matters of hygiene for many days. At that time we had 23 working weapons, nine rifles equipped with telescopic sights, five semi-automatic machine guns, four bolt-action rifles, two Thompson submachine guns, two submachine guns, and a 16-gauge shotgun. That afternoon we climbed the last hill before reaching the environs of La Plata. We were following a narrow track which had been marked out by Machete for us by a peasant named Melquiades Elias. He had been recommended by our guide, Utumio Guerra, who at the time was indispensable to us and seemed to be the epitome of the rebel peasant. He was later apprehended by Joaquin Casillas, however, who instead of killing him, bought him off with an offer of $10,000 and a rank in the army if he managed to kill Fidel. Utemio came close to fulfilling his part of the bargain, but lacked the courage to do so. He was nonetheless very useful to the enemy, informing them of the location of several of our camps. At the time Utemio was serving us loyally, he was one of the many peasants fighting for their land in the struggle against the big landowners, and anyone who fought them also fought the rural guard who did the landowners' beating. That day we took two peasants prisoner, who turned out to be relatives of our guide. The next day, January 15th, we sighted the La Plata Army Barracks under construction and with zinc roofs. A group of half-dressed men were moving about, but we could nevertheless make out their enemy uniforms. Just before sundown, a boat came in. Some soldiers got out and others climbed aboard. Because we could not quite figure out the maneuver, we postponed the attack to the following day. We began watching the barracks from dawn on January 16th. The Coast Guard boat had withdrawn during the night and no soldiers could be seen. At 3 p.m. we decided to approach the road leading to the barracks. By nightfall we crossed the very shallow La Plata River and took a position on the road. Five minutes later we apprehended two peasants. When we told them who we were and assured them that if they did not speak, our intentions could not be guaranteed, they gave us some valuable information. The barracks held about 15 soldiers. They also told us that Chicho Osorio, one of the region's three most notorious foremen, was about to pass by. These foremen worked for the Laviti family estate. The Lavitis had built an enormous fiefdom, maintaining it through a regime of terror with the help of individuals like Chicho Osorio. Shortly afterward, the said Chicho showed up drunk, astride a mule with a small Afro-Cuban boy riding behind him. Universal Sanchez, in the name of the rural guard, gave him the order to halt, and Chicho rapidly replied, Mosquito. That was the password. We must have looked like a bunch of pirates, but Chicho Osorio was so drunk we were able to fool him. Fidel stepped forward and in an indignant tone said he was an army colonel who had come to investigate why the rebels had not yet been liquidated. 
He bragged about having gone into the woods, which accounted for his beard. He added that what the army was doing was trash. Sheepishly, Chicho Osorio admitted that the guards spent all their time inside the barracks, eating and doing nothing but firing occasional useless rounds. He readily agreed that the rebels must be wiped out. We carefully began asking about who was friendly and unfriendly in the area and noted his replies, naturally reversing the roles. When Chicho called somebody a bad man, we knew he was one of our friends, and so on. We had some twenty names, and he was still jabbering away. He told us how he had killed two men, adding, But my General Batista set me free at once. Fidel asked Osorio what he would do if he ever cut Fidel Castro, and Osorio with an explicit gesture said that he would cut his... off. And that the same went for Crescencio Pérez. Look, he said, showing us his shoes, which were the same Mexican-made kind our troops were. These shoes belong to one of those sons of... We killed... There without realizing that Chicho Osorio signed his own death sentence. At Fidel's suggestion, he agreed to accompany us to the barracks in order to surprise the soldiers and prove to them they were badly prepared and neglecting their duties. Nearing the barracks, with Chicho Osorio in the lead, I was still not certain he had not wised up to our trick. But he kept on, so drunk he could not think straight. He explained to us that the only guards posted were at the entrance to the barracks under construction and at the house of one of the other foremen named Honorio. Osorio guided us to a place near the barracks on the road to El Masillo. Compañero Luis Crespo, now a commander, went on to scout and returned saying the foreman's report was correct. Crespo had seen the two barracks and the fiery ends of the guard cigarettes. We had twenty-two weapons ready for the attack. It was an important occasion, and we had very little ammunition. We had to take the army barracks at all costs for failure meant wasting our ammunition, leaving us practically defenseless. Compañero Lieutenant Julio Díaz, who later died heroically at the Battle of El Uvierro, Camilo Sinfuegos, Benitas, and Calisto de Morales, armed with semi-automatic machine guns, were to surround the palm thatch quarters on the right side. Fidel, Universo Sanchez, Luis Crespo, Calisto Garcia, Manuel Fajardo, and myself would attack the center, Raul Castro with his squadron and Almeida with his would attack from the left. We approached within forty meters of the barracks. By the light of the full moon, Fidel initiated the battle with two bursts of machine gun fire and all available rifles followed. The murderer and informer Chicho Osorio was executed as soon as shooting broke out. The attack had begun at 2.40 a.m. The guards put up a much fiercer resistance than we had expected. A sergeant, armed with an M1, responded with fire every time we demanded their surrender. We were given orders to use our old Brazilian-type hand grenades. Luis Crespo threw his, and I mine, but they did not detonate. Raul Castro threw a stick of dynamite, and nothing happened. We then had no choice but to get close to the quarters and set them on fire. Universo Sanchez made the first futile attempt, and Camilo Sanfuegos also failed. Finally, Luis Crespo and I got close to one of the buildings, and this compañero set it alight. The soldiers gave up the fight. We quickly took stock of our takings. Eight Springfield, one Thompson machine gun, and about 1,000 rounds. We had fired approximately 500 rounds. In addition, we now had cartridge belts, fuel, knives, clothing, and some food. Casualties, they had two dead, five wounded, and we had taken three prisoners. On our side? not a scratch. We withdrew after setting fire to the soldiers' quarters and tending to the wounded as best we could. 
Three of them were seriously wounded, and we left them in the care of the prisoners. Our attitude toward the wounded was in stark contrast to that of Batista's army. Not only did they kill our wounded men, they abandoned their own. Over time, this difference had an effect on the enemy, and it was a factor in our victory. Fidel ordered that the prisoners be given all available medicine to take care of the wounded. This decision pained me because, as a doctor, I felt the need to save all available medicine for our own troops. We freed the civilians and at 4.30 a.m. on January 17th started for Palmamoche, searching out the most inaccessible zones of the Sierra Maestra. This was the first victorious battle of the rebel army. This battle and the one following it were the only occasions in the life of our troops when we had more weapons than men. Peasants were not yet ready to join in the struggle, and communication with the urban bases was practically non-existent. The Battle of Arroyo del Infierno The Arroyo del Infierno is a narrow, shallow river flowing into the Palmamocha River. Walking along it, away from the Palmamocha and mounting the slopes of the bordering hills, we reached a small, circular clearing where we found two peasant huts. Here we made camp, naturally leaving the huts unoccupied. Fidel presumed that the army would come after us. With this in mind, he planned an ambush and posted the men. Fidel watched our lines vigilantly and checked and rechecked our defenses. A state of high tension prevailed as we waited for the relief that battle would bring. In such moments, even those with the strongest nerves feel a certain faint trembling at the knees. At dawn on January 22nd, we heard shots from the direction of the Palmamota River and believing the soldiers to be nearby, we ate neither breakfast nor lunch. It was noon when we saw a figure in one of the huts. One of the dictatorship soldiers was looking around. Then about six others appeared. We saw the soldier on guard sit calmly in the shade. His face, clearly visible through the telescopic sight, showed no signs of fear. Fidel's opening shot shattered him. The gun battle spread and the unfortunate soldier's two comrades fell. Suddenly, I noticed that in the hut closer to me another soldier was trying to hide. I fired and missed. The second shot cut the man full in the chest and he fell, leaving his rifle pierced in the ground by the bayonet. Covered by the Guajiro Crespo, I reached the house and saw the body. I took his bullets, his rifle, and a few other belongings. The battle was extraordinarily fast, and soon our plans successfully executed. We withdrew. Taking inventory, we found that we had spent approximately 900 bullets and had retrieved 70 from a full cartridge case. We also acquired a machine gun a garand, which was given to Commander F. Ingenio Amahiris, who used it for a good part of the war. We counted four enemy dead. We had matched our forces against the enemy in new conditions, and we had passed the test. These improved our spirits greatly and enabled us to continue climbing the whole day toward the most inaccessible reaches in order to escape pursuit by larger enemy groups. We were walking parallel to Batista's group, also withdrawing both groups having crossed the same mountain peak. For two days our troops and those of the enemy marched almost side by side without realizing it. Once we slept in a hut that was barely separated from another house in the enemy by a small river and a couple of bends in the road. The lieutenant commanding the enemy patrol was Sanchez Mosquera, whose name had become infamous throughout the Sierra Maestra in the wake of his pillaging. It is worth mentioning that the shots we had heard several hours before the battle had killed a peasant who had refused to lead the troops to our hideout. If they had not committed this murder, they would not have alerted us. Once again, we were carrying too much weight. Many of us had two rifles. Under these circumstances, it was not easy to walk. 
But clearly, morale was different from what it had been after the disaster of Alegria del Pio. A few days earlier, we had defeated a group smaller than ours, entrenched in a barracks. Now, we had defeated a column on the march, superior in numbers to our forces. Air Attack After the victory over Sanchez Mosquera's forces, we walked along the La Plata's banks and later crossing the Magdalena River, returned to the already familiar region of Caracas. But the atmosphere was different from what we had experienced the first time, when we had been hiding and the villagers had supported us. Now Casillas' troops had passed through, sowing terror throughout the region. The peasants had gone, leaving only their empty huts and a few animals which we ate. Experience had taught us it was not smart to stay in the houses, so we climbed back into the woods and pitched camp beside a small spring, almost at the summit of Caracas Peak. It was there that Manuel Fajardo came to me and asked if it were possible that we could lose the war. My response was always the same. The war would unquestionably be won. He explained that he had asked me because the Gallego Moran had told him that winning the war was impossible. He had urged Fajardo to abandon the campaign. I made Fidel aware of this, who told me that Moran had already let him know he was covertly testing the morale of the troops. We agreed that this was not the best approach, and Fidel made a short speech urging greater discipline and explaining the dangers that might arise if this discipline were disregarded. He also announced three crimes punishable by death, insubordination, desertion, and defeatism. Our situation was not particularly happy in those days. The column lacked that spirit which is forged only through battle, and it was without a cohesive political consciousness. On one day, a compañero would leave us, on the next day another, and many requested assignments in the city that often entailed much more risk, but that meant an escape from the rough conditions in the countryside. Still, our campaign continued on its course. The Gallego Moran demonstrated indefatigable energy, looking for food and making contact with the peasants in the immediate vicinity. Such were our spirits on the morning of January 30th, 1957. Utimio Guerra, the traitor, had earlier asked permission to visit his sick mother, and Fidel had granted it, also giving him some money, for his trip would last some weeks. We had not yet caught on to a series of incidents, but this man's subsequent behavior clearly explained them. When he rejoined the troop, Utimio said that he had almost reached Palmamocha when he realized government forces were on our trail. He had tried to get back to warn us, had followed our trail across the Sierra Maestra until he finally found us. But what had actually happened was that he had been taken prisoner. After being bribed with money and a military rank in exchange for murdering Fidel, he was now working as an enemy agent. As part of this plan, Utemio had left the camp the previous day, and on the morning of January 30th, after a cold night, just as we were getting up, we heard the roar of planes. We could not locate them since we were in the woods. Our field kitchen was some two hundred meters below us near a small spring, where the forward guard was stationed. Suddenly we heard the dive of a fighter plane, the rattle of machine gun fire, and after a moment, the bombs. Our experience was very limited, and we seemed to hear shots from all sides. Fifty caliber bullets explode when they hit the ground, and although what we heard was machine guns firing from the air, as the bullets exploded near us, they gave the impression of coming from the woods. Because of this, we thought we were being attacked by ground troops. I was instructed to wait for members of the forward guard and to gather up some supplies we had dropped during the air attack. We were to meet the rest of the troop at the Cueva del Humo. My compañero was Chao, 
a veteran of the Spanish Civil War, and though we waited quite a while for the missing men, no one came. We followed the column along a track, both weighed down, until we came to a clearing and decided to rest. After a while, we noticed some noise and movement, and saw that our column's tracks were also being followed by Guillermo Garcia and Sergio Acuña, both from the forward guard, who were trying to rejoin the group. After some deliberation, Guillermo Garcia and I returned to the camp to see what was happening since the noise of the planes had faded. A desolate spectacle awaited us. With an eerie precision that fortunately was not repeated during the war, the field kitchen hearth had been smashed to pieces by machine gun fire, and a bomb had exploded exactly in the center of the forward guard camp just moments after our troop had left. The Gallego Moran and a compañero had gone out to scout, and Moran had seen five planes in the distance, but no ground troops in the vicinity. The five of us, with heavy loads, continued to walk through the bleak scene of our friends' burned-out huts. We found only a cat that meowed at us pitifully, and a pig that came out grunting when it heard us. We had heard of the Cuevo del Humo, but did not know exactly where it was, so we spent the night in uncertainty, waiting to see our compañeros, but fearing we would meet the enemy instead. On January 31st, we took up positions on top of the hill overlooking some cultivated fields where we thought we would find the Cuevo del Homo. We went out with Guillermo to explore the bottom of the valley near the banks of the Yaqui River, where a friend of Guillermo's gave us something to eat, but the people there were very fearful. Guillermo's friend told us that all of Ciro Frias' merchandise had been taken by the guards and burned, the mules had been requisitioned, and the mule driver killed. Sierra Fria's store was burned down and his wife taken prisoner. The men who passed through in the morning were under Major Casillas' orders. On February 1st, we stayed in our little camp, recovering from the exhaustion of the previous day's march. At 11 a.m., we heard gunfire on the other side of the hill, and soon, closer to us, we heard desperate shouts. Without this, Sergio Acuña's nerves seemed to snap, and he left his cartridge belt and rifle, deserting the guard post he was assigned to. I noted in my campaign diary that he had taken with him a straw hat, a can of condensed milk, and three sausages. At the time, we felt deeply for the can of milk and the sausages. A few hours later, we heard some noise and prepared to defend ourselves, but Crescencio appeared with a large column of almost all our men, and some new people from Manzanillo led by Roberto Pesant. Once again, we descended to the Yaqui River Valley and on the way, some of the supplies from Manzanillo were distributed, including a surgical kit and a change of clothes for everyone. It moved us greatly to receive clothes which had our initials embroidered on them by the girls of Manzanillo. The next day, February 2nd, two months after the Grandma landing, we were a reunited, uniformed group. Ten more men from Manzanillo had joined us, and we felt stronger and in better spirits than ever. We had many discussions on what had caused the surprised air attack, and we all agreed that cooking by day and the smoke from the fire had guided the planes to our camp. For the duration of the war, fires were not built in the open air during the day. We would have found it impossible to believe that the traitor and informer, Eutimio Guerra, had been in the observation plane pointing out our location to Casillas. For some time to come, Utemio played an important adverse role in the development of our liberation war. Surprise Attack at Altos de Espinosa After the surprise air attack described previously, we abandoned Caracas Peak and attempted to return to familiar regions where we could establish direct contact with Manzanillo, receive more help from the outside, and better follow the situation in the rest of the country. 
Crossing the Yaqui, we returned through territories familiar to all of us until we reached the house of old Mendoza. With machetes, we had to open a path along the ridges of the hills that had not been walked for many years, and our progress was very slow. We spent the nights in those hills, practically without food. I still remember as though it were one of the great banquets of my life when the Guajiro Crespo turned up with a can of four pork sausages, a result of earlier savings, saying that they were for his friends. The Guajiro, Fidel, myself, and someone else enjoyed the meager ration as if it were a lavish feast. The march continued until we reached the house to the right of Caracas Peak, where old Mendoza prepared us something to eat. Despite his fear, his peasant loyalty meant he welcomed us each time we passed through. Such were the exigencies of friendship with Crescencio Perez and other peasants who were his friends in the troop. For me, the march was excruciating. I was suffering a bout of malaria. Crespo and the unforgettable compañero Julio Zenon Acosta helped me complete the anguish march. We were forced to reduce the troop size as a group of men were suffering very low morale and one or two were seriously wounded. Among the latter were Ramiro Valdez, today Minister of the Interior, and one of Crescencio's sons, Ignacio Perez, who later died heroically with the rank of captain. Ramirito Ramiro Valdez had been badly wounded in the knee, the same knee that had already been hit during the 1953 Moncada attack, so we had no choice but to leave him behind. A few other men also left, to the advantage of the troop. I remember one of them had an attack of nerves and began to shriek there in the solitude of the mountains. Those who stayed and survived the first tests grew accustomed to the dirt, the lack of water, food, shelter, and security, and to a life where the only thing one could rely on were a rifle and the cohesion and resistance of the small guerrilla cell. Sio Frias arrived with some new recruits, bringing news that today makes us smile, but which at the time filled us with confusion. Diaz Tamayo was on the verge of switching allegiances and making a deal with the revolutionary forces, and Faustino had collected thousands and thousands of pesos. In short, subversion was spreading throughout the entire country, and chaos was descending on the government. We also heard some sad news, but with important lessons in it. Sergio Acuña, the deserter of some days before, had gone home to some relatives. He began to brag to his cousins about his feats as a guerrilla. A certain Pedro Herrera overheard and denounced him to the World Guard. The infamous Copro Rosello arrived, tortured him, shot him four times, and apparently hanged him. This taught the men the value of cohesion and the futility of attempting to flee a collective destiny alone. But it also made it necessary for us to change camps, for presumably the young man had talked before being murdered, and he knew we were at Florentino's house. There was a curious incident at the time, and only later, when we were fitting the evidence together, did things become clear. Utemio Guerra told us he had dreamed Sergio Acuña's death, and that in his dream, Corporal Rosario had killed him. This sparked a long philosophical discussion about whether dreams could really predict things to come. It was part of my daily work to explain cultural or political things to the men, so I tried to explain that it was not possible. Perhaps the dream could be explained by a huge coincidence, and anyway, we had all believed Sergio Acuña might meet his fate that way. We all knew Rosello was the man pillaging the region at that time. Universo Sanchez provided the key, suggesting that Utimio was a storyteller, 
and that the previous day when he left camp to get fifty cans of milk and a military lamp, someone had obviously told him about it. One of those who insisted most strongly on the premonition was a forty-five-year-old illiterate peasant I have already mentioned, Julio Senón Acosta. He was my first student in the Sierra Maestra. He was working hard to learn to read and write, and every time we stopped I would teach him a few letters of the alphabet. With great determination, not dwelling on past years but looking at those to come, Julio Senón had set himself the task of becoming literate. Perhaps his example may be useful today, for Julio Senón Acosta was another of our great compañeros at the time. He was a tireless worker, familiar with the region, always ready to help a combatant in trouble, or a combatant from the city who did not yet have the necessary reserves to get out of tight spots. He was the one to cut water from distant springs, the one to take a quick shot, the one to find dry kindling on days of rain and quickly build a fire. He was, in fact, our jack-of-all-trades. One of the last nights before his treachery became known, Utemio complained that he did not have a blanket, and asked Fidel if he would lend him one. It was cold in the heights of those mountains that February. Fidel answered that if he did so, they would both be cold, and suggested that they sleep under the same blanket, and Fidel's two coats to keep them warm. So Utemio Guerra spent the whole night next to Fidel, with a fortified pistol from Casilla with which to kill him. He spoke to Universo Sanchez and me, both always near Fidel about Fidel's guards. I'm very concerned about those guards. It's so important to be careful. We explained that there were three men posted nearby. We ourselves, veterans of the Grama and Fidel's trusted men, relieved each other throughout the night to protect Fidel personally. Thus, Utemio spent the night beside the revolution's leader, holding his life at the point of a gun, awaiting the chance to assassinate him, but he could not do it. That whole night, the fate of the Cuban revolution depended in large measure on the twists and turns of a man's mind, on a balance of courage and fear, and perhaps on conscience, on a traitor's lust for power and wealth. Luckily for us, Utimio's inhibitions were stronger, and the day broke without incident. On February 9, 1957, Ciro Frias and Luis Crespo left as usual to scout for food, and all was quiet. At 10 a.m., a peasant boy named Emilio Lavrada, a new recruit, captured someone nearby. He turned out to be a relative of Crescencio and an employee in Leon Celestino's store where Casillas soldiers were stationed. He informed us that there were 140 soldiers in the house. From our position, we could in fact see them in the distance on a barren hill. Furthermore, the prisoner said he had talked with Utimio, who had told him that the following day the area would be bombed. Casillas' troops had moved, but he could not say exactly which direction they were going in. Fidel became suspicious and at 1.30 p.m. decided to leave the area. We climbed to the peak where we waited for our scouts. Sio Frios and Luis Crespo soon arrived. They had seen nothing strange. We were talking about this when Ciro Ridando thought he saw a shadow moving, called for silence, and cocked his rifle. Suddenly, the air was full of the shots and explosions of an attack concentrated on our previous camp. The new camp emptied rapidly. Afterward, I learned that Julio Senón Acosta would live for eternity at that hilltop. The uneducated peasant who had understood the enormous task the revolution would face after victory and who was learning the alphabet to prepare himself would never finish the task. The rest of us ran. My backpack, my pride and joy full of medicine, reserve rations, books and blankets was left behind. 
I managed, however, to pick up a blanket from Batista's army, a trophy from La Plata, and I ran. Soon I met up with a group of armed men, Almilleda, Julito Julio Díaz, Universo Sánchez, Camilo Sinfuegos, Guillermo García, Ciro Frías, Motolá, Pesant, Emilio Labrada, and Yayo Reyes. We followed a circuitous path, trying to escape the shots, unaware of the fate of our other compañeros. We heard isolated explosions following on our heels. We were easy to follow since the speed of our flight meant we could not erase our traces. At 5.15 we reached a rocky spot where the woods ended. We decided it was better to wait there until nightfall. If we crossed in the daylight we would be spotted. If the enemy had followed our tracks we were well placed to defend ourselves. The enemy, however, did not appear and we were able to continue on our way. After three days of separation on February 12th, we met Fidel near El Lomón at Derecha de la Caridad. There it was confirmed that Utemio Guerra was the traitor. The story began after the Battle of La Plata when he was captured by Casillas and instead of being killed was offered a sum of money for Fidel's life. We were once again reunited, our twelve minus Labrada, who had gone missing, and the rest of the group, Raúl Amejeras, Ciro Ridondo, Manuel Fajardo, Juan Francisco Echevarria, the Gallego Moran, and Fidel, a total of eighteen people. This was the reunified Revolutionary Army of February 12th, 1957. Some compañeros had been scattered, some raw recruits had abandoned us, and there was the desertion of a grandma veteran named Armando Rodriguez. In the last days, whenever he heard shots closing in from the distance, his face filled with so much horror and anguish that later we termed his the hunted face. Each time a man revealed the face of a terrified animal, possessed by the terror our ex-compañero had shown, we immediately foresaw an unfortunate outcome, for that hunted face was incompatible with guerrilla life. Someone with such a face shifted into third, as we said in our new guerrilla slang. Death of a Traitor After this small army was reunited, we decided to leave the region of El Lomón and move to new ground. Along the way, we continued making contact with peasants and laying the necessary groundwork for our subsistence. At the same time, we were leaving the Sierra Maestra and walking toward the plains where we were to meet those involved in organizing the cities. We passed through a village called La Monteria and afterward camped in a small grove of trees near a river on a farm belonging to a man named Epifanio Diaz, whose sons fought in the revolution. We sought to establish tighter contact with the July 26 movement, for our nomadic and clandestine life made impossible any exchange between the two parts of the July 26 movement. Practically speaking, these were two separate groups with different tactics and strategies. The deep rift that in later months would endanger the unity of the movement had not yet appeared, but we could already see that our ideas were different. At that farm we met with the most important figures of the urban movement. Among them were three women known today to all the Cuban people, Vilma Espin, now president of the Federation of Cuban Women, and Raúl Castro's compañera, Aidi Santa Maria, now president of Casa de las Américas, and Armando Hart's compañera, and Celia Sanchez, our beloved compañera throughout every moment of the struggle, who in order to be closer to us later joined the Corillas for the duration of the war. Another figure to visit was Faustino Perez, a compañero from the Grama, who had carried out several missions in the city and came to report to us, before returning to continue his urban mission. A short while later, he was taken prisoner. 
We also met Armando Hart, and I had my only opportunity to meet that great leader from Santiago, Frank Pais. Frank Pais was one of those people who command respect from the first meeting. He looked more or less as he appears in the photographs we have of him today, though his eyes were extraordinarily deep. It is difficult today to speak of a dead compañero I met only once, whose history now belongs to the people. I can only say of him that his eyes revealed he was a man possessed by a cause, who had faith in it, and that he was clearly a superior kind of person. Today he is called the unforgettable Frank Pais, and for me, who saw him only once, that is true. Frank is another of the many compañeros who, had their lives not been cut short, would today be dedicating themselves to the common task of the socialist revolution. This loss is part of the heavy price the people have paid to gain their liberation. Frank gave us a quiet lesson in order and discipline, cleaning our dirty rifles, counting bullets, and packing them so they would not get lost. From that day, I made a promise to take better care of my gun. That same grove of trees was also the scene of other events. For the first time, we were visited by a foreign journalist, Herbert Matthews, who brought to the conversation only a small box camera with which he took the photo so widely distributed later. Javier Pasos acted as interpreter. He later joined the guerrillas and remained for some time. Matthews' visit was naturally very brief. As soon as he left us, we were ready to move on. We were warned, however, to redouble our guard since Utimio was in the area. Amilleda was quickly ordered to find him and take him prisoner. Julito Diaz, Ciro Frias, Camilo Sinfuegos, and Efegenio Amejeras were also in the patrol. It was Ciro Frias who overcame Otimio, and he was brought to us. We found a forty-five pistol on him, three grenades, and a safe conduct pass from Casillas. With this incriminating evidence, he could not doubt his fate. He fell on his knees before Fidel and asked simply that we kill him. He said he knew he deserved to die. The moment was extraordinarily tense. Fidel reproved him harshly for his betrayal, and Utemio wanted only to be shot, recognizing his guilt. None of us will forget when Ciro Frias, a close friend of Utemio, began to speak. He reminded Utemio of everything he had done for him, of the little favors he and his brother had done for Utemio's family, and of how Utemio had betrayed them. It was a long emotional tirade, which Itomio listened to silently, his head bent. He was asked if he wanted anything, and he answered that yes, he wanted the revolution, or better said us, to take care of his children. The revolution has kept this promise. The name Utomio Guerra resurfaces today in this book, but it has already been forgotten, perhaps even by his children. They go by another name and attend one of our many schools. They receive the same treatment as all of the children of the country and are working toward a better life. One day, however, they will have to know that their father was brought to revolutionary justice because of his treachery. They should also know that in his last moments he remembered his children and asked our leader that they be treated well. When we left, Frank Pais agreed to send a group of men in the first days of the following month, March. They were to join us at Epifanio Diaz's house in the vicinity of El Jivarro. Bitter Days The days following our departure from the house of Epifanio Diaz were for me, personally, the most grueling of the war. Our revolutionary group consisted of 17 men from the original army and three new compañeros, Hill, Sotolongo, and Raul Diaz. 
these three compañeros came on the grama. They had been hiding near Manzanillo and hearing of our presence had decided to join us. Their stories were the same as ours. They had been able to evade the rural guard by seeking refuge in the house of one peasant after another. Now they joined their fate to that of the whole column. In that period, as has been described, it was very difficult to enlarge our army. A few new men came, but others left. The physical conditions of the struggle were very hard, but the spiritual conditions even more so, and we lived with the feeling that we were constantly under siege. We were walking slowly in no fixed direction, hiding among bushes in a region where the livestock had won out over the foliage. Ever so often, from different directions, we heard machine gun fire. The guards were shooting into the trees, which they often did, but although they expended considerable ammunition, they never actually entered these areas. In my campaign diary I noted, on February 22, 1957, that I had the first symptoms of what could develop into a serious asthma attack, as I was without asthma medicine. There was a new date for the rendezvous, March 5th, so we were forced to wait, simply marking time until the day Frank Pais was to send us a group of armed men. We had already decided that first we had to fortify our small front before increasing it in numbers, and therefore all available arms in Santiago were to be sent up to the Sierra Maestra. We spent a precarious day in a valley near Las Mercedes. By night we arrived at the house of old Emiliano, another of the many peasants who in those days felt the shock of fear each time they saw us, but who nevertheless risked their lives for us valiantly contributing to the development of our revolution. It was the wet season in the Sierra Maestra, and we were soaked every night, which is why we entered the homes of peasants despite the danger, because the area was infested with soldiers. My asthma was so bad I could not move very well, and we had to sleep in a little coffee grove near a peasant hut, where we regrouped our forces. On the day I am describing, February 27th or 28th, censorship in the country was lifted and the radio streamed news of everything that had happened during the past months. They spoke of terrorist acts and of the Matthews interview with Fidel. It was then that Batista's minister of defense made his famous statement that the Matthews interview had never taken place and challenged him to publish the photos. Hermes, the son of old Emiliano, was a peasant helping us with meals and pointing out paths we should take. But on the morning of February 28th, he did not appear as he usually did, and Fidel ordered us to evacuate immediately and post ourselves where we could overlook the roads. At about 4 p.m., Luis Crespo and Universo Sanchez saw a large troop of soldiers coming along the road from Las Vegas, preparing to occupy the crest. We had to run quickly to the top of the hill and cross to the other side before the troops blocked our path. The mortars and machine guns were beginning to sound, proving that Batista's army was aware of our presence. Everybody was able to reach the peak easily and pass over it, but for me it was a tremendous effort. I made it to the top, but with such an asthma attack that each step was difficult. I remember how much work Crespo put into helping me. The Gajero, with everything he was already carrying, virtually carried both me and my pack over the hill with a heavy downpour against our backs. That is how we reached a small peasant hut and learned we were in a place called Pugatorio. Fidel passed himself off as a major Armando Gonzalez of Batista's army, supposedly searching for the insurgents. The owner, coldly courteous, offered us his house and waited on us, but there was another man there, a friend from a neighboring hut who was an extraordinary graveler. Because of my physical state, I could not fully enjoy the delicious dialogue between Fidel in the role of Major Gonzalez 
and the peasant who wondered aloud why that muchacho Fidel Castro was in the hills fighting. When the indiscreet neighbor had left, Fidel told the owner of the house who he really was. The man embraced him immediately, saying he was a supporter of the Orthodox party, that he had always followed Eduardo Chivas and was at our service. We had to send the man to Manzanillo to buy medicine, and I had to be left near the house without his wife suspecting I was there. The last combatant to join our group of doubtful character but great strength was assigned to stay with me. Fidel, in a generous gesture, gave me a Johnson repeater, one of the treasures of our group to defend ourselves with. We all pretended to leave in one direction, and after a few steps my companion, who we called El Maestro, and I disappeared into the woods to reach our hiding place. The peasant carried out his task and brought me sufficient adrenaline. Then came ten of the most bitter days of the struggle in the Sierra Maestra, walking, supporting myself from tree to tree or on the butt of my rifle, accompanied by a frightened compañero who trembled each time we heard shots and who became nervous each time my asthma made me cough in some dangerous spot. It was ten long days of work to reach Epifanio's house once again, which normally took little more than one. The date for the meeting had been March 5th, but because of the army line, we did not arrive at Epifanio Diaz's welcoming house until March 11th. The inhabitants informed us of what had happened. Fidel's group of 18 men had mistakenly split up when they thought they were going to be attacked by the army in a place called Altos de Merino. Twelve men had gone on with Fidel and six with Ciro Frias. Later, Ciro Frias' group had fallen into an ambush, but they all came out of it unhurt and met up again nearby. Only one of them, Yayo, who returned without his rifle, had passed by Epifanio Diaz's house on his way toward Manzanillo. We learned everything from him. The troop Frank was sending was ready, although Frank himself was in prison in Santiago. We met with the troop's leader, Jorge Sotas, who held the rank of captain. He had not made it on March 5th because news of the new group had spread and the roads were heavily guarded. Reinforcements on March 13, 1957, while we waited for the new revolutionary troop, we heard over the radio that there had been an attempt to assassinate Batista. They listed the names of patriots killed in the assault. First, there was the student leader, Jose Antonio Echavaria, then others, like Manalao Mora. People not involved in the attempt also died. The following day we learned that Palayo Cuevo Navarro, a militant from the Orthodox Party who had always stood firmly against Batista, had been assassinated. Our reinforcements were scheduled to arrive on March 15th. We waited long hours in the agreed place, a river bend in the canyon, but no one arrived. They arrived at dawn on March 16th, so tired they could barely walk the few steps to the trees where they could rest until daybreak. They came in trucks owned by a rice farmer from the area who, frightened by the implications of his act, went into exile in Costa Rica. He later returned by plane, flying arms to Cuba, Transformed into a hero, his name was Hubert Matos. The reinforcement was about 50 men, of whom only 30 were armed. They brought two machine guns, one Madsen and one Johnson. After a few months of living in the Sierra Maestra, we had become veterans, and we saw in the new troops all the defects those who came on the grama had displayed. The group was led by Jorge Sotos and was divided into five squadrons of ten men whose leaders were lieutenants. The squadron leaders were a compañero named Dominguez, who was killed a little while later, a compañero, René Ramos Latour, who died heroically in battle during the last days of the dictatorship's final offensive, 
Pedrin Soto, our old compañero from the Grama, who also died in battle on the Frank Pais, Second Eastern Front. Also, compañero Peña, a student from San Diego, who reached the rank of commander and took his own life after the revolution. And Lieutenant Ermo, the only squadron leader to survive the almost two years of war. Of all the new troops' problems, difficulty marching was one of their greatest. Their leader, Jorge Sotos, was one of the worst and constantly lagged behind, setting a bad example. I had been ordered to take charge of the troop, but when I spoke about this with Sotos, he argued that he had orders to turn the men over to Fidel, and he could not turn them over to anyone else. I still had a complex then about being a foreigner and did not want to take extreme measures, although I noticed a great uneasiness in the troop. After several short marches, which nevertheless became very long due to the men's poor preparation, we reached a place called La Derecha, where we were to wait for Fidel. There we met the small group of men who had been separated from Fidel earlier, Manuel Fajardo, Guillermo Garcia, Juventino, Pesant, the three Sotomayor brothers, and Ciro Frias. The enormous difference between the two groups was clear. Ours was disciplined, compact, war-practiced. That of the raw recruits was still suffering the sickness of the first days. They were not used to eating one meal a day, and if the ration did not taste good, they would not eat it. Their packs were full of useless things, and if they weighed too heavily, they preferred, for example, to give up a can of condensed milk than a towel, a crime of laissez-garia. We took advantage of this by collecting all the cans of food they left along the way. After we were installed in La Derecha, the situation became highly tense because of constant friction between Jorge Sotas, an authoritarian spirit who had no rapport with the men, and the troop in general. We had to take special precautions, and René Ramos, whose nom de guerra was Daniel, was put in charge of the machine gun squadron at the entrance of our refuge, so we had a guarantee that nothing would happen. Sometime later, Jorge Sotas was sent on a special mission to Miami. There he betrayed the revolution by meeting with Felipe Passos, whose immeasurable ambition for power made him forget his obligations, and who set himself up as provisional president in a cooked-up intrigue in which the U.S. State Department played an important role. With time, Captain Sotas showed us signs of wanting to redeem himself, and Raul Castro gave him the opportunity, which the revolution has denied no one. He began, however, to conspire against the revolutionary government and was condemned to twenty years in prison, escaping thanks to the complicity of one of his guards who fled with him to the United States. At the time, however, we tried to help him as much as possible to iron out his disagreements with the new compañeros. Guillermo Garcia went to Caracas in search of Fidel, while I made a trip to pick up Ramiro Valdez, more or less recovered from his leg wound. On the night of March 24th, Fidel arrived with twelve compañeros, and the sight was impressive. There was a notable difference between the barbudos, bearded men, with packs made of any available material and tied together whichever way possible, and the new combatants, with clean uniforms, clean-shaven faces, and clean backpacks. I explained the problems we had encountered to Fidel, and a small council was established to decide on future plans. The council was made up of Fidel, Raúl, Almieda, Jorge Sotos, Ciro Frías, Guillermo García, Camilo Senfuegos, Manuel Fajardo, and myself. Fidel criticized my behavior in not exercising the authority conferred on me, but leaving it in the hands of the recently arrived Sotos, against whom there was no animosity, but whose attitude in Fidel's opinion should not have been tolerated. The new platoons were organized, integrating the entire troop and forming three groups under the direction of Captains Raúl Castro, 
Juan Almieda and Jorge Sotus, Camilo Sinfuegos were lead the forward guard, and Efegenio Amigeres the rear guard. I was general staff physician, and Universo Sanchez functioned as general staff squadron leader. Our troop reached a new excellence with these additional men. We had also received two more machine guns, although they were old and poorly maintained. Nevertheless, we were now a considerable force. We discussed what action we should take immediately. My feeling was that we should attack the first possible enemy post in order to temper the new men in battle. But Fidel and all the other council members thought it better to march for some time so they could get used to the rigors of the hills. So we decided to move eastward, looking for a chance to surprise a group of soldiers after having some elementary training in guerrilla warfare. The troop prepared itself enthusiastically and left to fulfill its tasks. Its baptism of blood was to be the Battle of El Uvero. Temporary the Men The months of March and April 1957 were months of restructuring and apprenticeship for the rebel troops. After receiving reinforcements at La Derecha, our army had some 80 men and was organized as follows. The forward guard, directed by Camilo, had four men. The next platoon was led by Raul Castro and had three lieutenants. They were Julito Diaz, Ramiro Valdez, and Nano Diaz, each of whom had a squadron. The two compañeros named Diaz both died heroically at El Uvero. With Captain Jorge Sotus were Lieutenants Ciro Frias, later killed on the Frank Pais Second Eastern Front, Guillermo Garcia, today head of the Western Army, and René Ramos Latour, who died after attaining the rank of commander in the Sierra Maestra. Then came the general staff or command post, which was made up of Fidel as commander-in-chief, Ciro Ridondo, Manuel Fajardo, today a commander in the army, Crespo, commander, Universo Sanchez, commander, and myself as doctor. The platoon that customarily followed in the columns line was Almieda's, then a captain, whose lieutenants were Hermo, Guillermo Dominguez, killed in Pino del Agua, and Hermes Piña, Efigenio Amigeros, a lieutenant, and three men closed the column and made up the rear guard. In light of our group's dimensions, squadrons began to cook for themselves and to distribute food, medicine, and ammunition. In almost all the squadrons, and certainly in all the platoons, veterans taught new men the art of cooking the food available, the art of packing a backpack, and how to march in the Sierra Maestra. The road between La Derecha, El Lomón, and El Uvero can be covered by car in a few hours but for us it meant months of slow, cautious walking, pursuing our principal mission of preparing the men for combat. That was how we again passed through Altos de Espinosa. There I found a piece of my blanket tangled in the brambles as a reminder of my strategic retreat made at full speed. I put it in my pack, firmly resolving never again to lose my equipment in that manner. I was assigned a new recruit, Paulino Fonseca, as an assistant to carry the medical supplies. This is my tasso that for a few minutes each day after our long marches I could attend to our troops' health. We were in a new phase. There had been a qualitative change. The enemy now avoided an entire zone for fear of encountering us. Although it's true, we also showed little interest in clashing with them. The political situation in those days was pregnant with the nuances of opportunism. The well-known voices of Pardo Yada, Conte Aguero and other vultures specialized in demagogic outbursts calling for harmony and peace and criticizing the government timidly. The government had spoken of peace. The new prime minister, Rivero Aguera, 
indicated that if necessary, he would go to the Sierra Maestra to gain peace for the country. Nevertheless, a few days later, Batista declared it was not necessary to speak with Fidel or the insurgents, that Fidel Castro was not in the Sierra Maestra and neither was anyone else, and that therefore there was no reason to talk with a bunch of bandits. So Batista's group showed its willingness to continue the fight, the only thing on which we easily agreed, for it was also our intent to continue at any price. A new chief of operations was named Colonel Pedro Barrera, well known for embezzling army ration funds. We had some nice characters with us then, useful in creating advertising for our movement in the United States. Two of them in particular brought a few inconveniences as well. Three Yankee muchachos had escaped their parents at the Guantanamo Naval Base to join our fight. Two of them never heard a shot in the Sierra Maestra, and exhausted by the climate and the privations, they left, taken by the journalist Bob Tabor. The third participated in the Battle of El Uvaro, but after that he also left, sick but having fought in a battle. The boys were not politically prepared for a revolution and were simply satiating their thirst for adventure in our company. We watched them go with affection, but also with relief, for they could not stand the rigors of our life. During those trying days, a canvas hammock finally came my way. The hammock is a precious thing that I have not received earlier because of strict guerrilla law, stating that canvas hammocks can only be given to those who have already made their own out of sacking in order to combat idleness, by which they gain the right to the next canvas one that came along. I could not sleep in the sack hammock, however, because of my allergies. The lint affected me greatly, and I was obliged to sleep on the ground. Since I did not have a hammock of sacking, I was not entitled to one of canvas. These small daily details were part of the individual dramas each guerrilla faced alone. But Fidel noticed, broke the rule, and awarded me a hammock. I will always remember that it was on the banks of the La Plata, in the last foothills before reaching Palmamocha, and it was one day after we ate our first horse. The horse was more than a luxury meal. It was also a kind of trial by fire for the men's capacity to adapt. The peasants in our group were indignant and refused to eat the ration of meat. Some considered Manuel Fajardo almost a murderer, for as a butcher in peacetime he was chosen to slaughter the first animal. This first horse belonged to a peasant named Popa from the other side of the La Plata. Popa should know how to read by now, after the 1961 Cuban literacy campaign, and if he sees the magazine Verde Olivo, he will remember that night when three sinister-looking rebels banged on the door of his hut and unjustly mistaking him for an informer, took his old horse with large harness horse across its back. Hours later, this animal was to be our meager ration, and its meat would constitute an exquisite banquet for some, and a test for the prejudiced stomachs of the peasants, who believed they were committing an act of cannibalism as they chewed up man's old friend. A Famous Interview In mid-April 1957, we returned with our mountain army in training to the region of Palmamocha near Turquino Peak. During that period, our most valuable men for fighting in the mountains were those of peasant stock. Guillermo Garcia and Ciro Frias, with patrols of peasants, came and went from place to place in the Sierra Maestra, bringing news, scouting, getting food. In a word, they were the mobile forward guard of our column. Fidel, who had no radio in those days, asked to borrow one from a local peasant who agreed, and so on a large radio carried in a combatant's backpack, we were able to hear the news direct from Havana. 
They were once again speaking with a certain truth and clarity because of the re-establishment of the so-called civil guarantees. We were once again in the region of Arroyo del Infierno, the site of one of our battles, and peasants who came to greet us described the tragic details of that attack. Which men had led the soldiers to our camp? Who had died? In fact, the peasants, well versed in the art of gossip, amply informed us of all of the life in the region. Guillermo Garcia, brilliantly disguised as a Batista army corporal, and two compañeros disguised as army soldiers, went to look for the informer who had led the army to us. They brought him back the following day. The man had been tricked, but when he saw the ragged army, he knew what awaited him. With great cynicism, he told us everything about his relations with the army, and how he had told that bastard Casillas that he would be perfectly willing to take the army to where we were and capture us. They had not, however, listened to him. On one of those days, in one of those hills, the informer was killed, and his remains buried on a ridge of the Sierra Maestra. We received a message from Celia, announcing she was coming with two North American journalists who wanted to interview Fidel, under the pretext of seeing the three little gringos. She also sent some money collected from sympathizers of the movement. It was decided that Lalo Sardinas would bring the North Americans in through Estrada Palma, which he knew well as a former merchant in the region. We were dedicating our time to make contact with peasants who could serve as links and maintain permanent camps for the whole region which was growing in size. We located houses to use as supply centers, warehouses which also served as rest stops for the fast human stagecoaches that moved along the edge of the Sierra Maestra carrying messages and news. Three days after the order was given to Lalo Sardinas, we heard that six people were coming up through the region of Santo Domingo. Two women, two gringos, the journalists, and two others no one knew. We also received some contradictory news that the rural guard had discovered their presence through an informer and had surrounded a house they were staying in. Camilo went out with a platoon to free the North Americans and Celia Sanchez at all costs. They arrived, however, safe and sound. The false alarm was due to enemy troop movements provoked by an informant, which in those days was easy to find among the backward peasants. On April 23rd, the journalist Bob Taper and a photographer arrived at our camp. With them came compañeras Celia Sanchez and Heidi Santa Maria, and the men sent by the movement in the plains, Marcos or Nicaragua, Commander Carlos Iglesias, today governor of Las Villas, and in those days in charge of armed actions in Santiago, and Marcelo Fernandez, who was coordinator of the movement and today is president of the National Bank. As he knew English, he acted as interpreter. The days went according to schedule. We tried to demonstrate our strength to the North Americans and evade their more indiscreet questions. We knew nothing about these journalists. Still, they interviewed the three boys who answered their questions very well demonstrating the new spirit they developed in the primitive life among us, despite their difficulty in adjusting and the fact that we had little in common. We were also joined by one of the dearest and most likable figures of our revolutionary war, Vaquierito Roberto Rodriguez. Together with another compañero, Vaquierito had spent over a month looking for us. He was from Moron in Camagüey, and as always in such cases, we interrogated him and then gave him the rudiments of political orientation, a task that frequently fell to me. Vaquerito did not have a political idea in his head, and did not seem to be anything other than a happy and healthy young man who saw all of this as a marvelous adventure. 
He came barefoot, and Celia lent him an extra pair of her shoes, which were leather and the kind worn in Mexico. Owing to his small stature, they were the only shoes that fit him. With the new shoes and a large straw hat, he looked like a Mexican cowboy or vaquero, and that is how the nickname Vaquerito was born. As is well known, Vaquerito did not see the end of the revolutionary struggle, for as head of the suicide squad of column number eight, he died one day before Santa Clara was taken. Of his life among us, we all remember his extraordinary joyfulness, his uninterrupted joviality, and the strange and romantic way he confronted danger. Vaquerito was an amazing liar. Perhaps he never had a conversation on which he did not adorn the truth so much that it was practically unrecognizable. But as a messenger, which he was in the early days, and later as a combatant or as head of the suicide squad, Vianquerito demonstrated that for him there was no precise border between reality and fantasy, and the same acts his agile mind invented he was able to carry out on the battlefield. His extreme bravery had become legend by the time our epic war was over, which he did not live to see. Compañero Nicaragua brought news of more weapons in Santiago, remnants of the assault on the presidential palace. But plans were underway to open another front in the region of the Miranda Sugar Mill. Fidel opposed this idea and only allowed a few arms for the second front, giving orders that all possible weapons be brought up to reinforce ours. We continued marching, distancing ourselves from the uncomfortable company of some guards who were marauding nearby. But first we decided to climb Turquino. The ascent of our highest mountain had an almost mystical meaning for us, and anyway, we were already quite close to the peak. The entire column climbed Turquino Peak, and up there we finished the interview with Bob Tabor. He was preparing a film that was later televised in the United States at a time when we were not feared so much. One illustrative note. A peasant who joined us told us that Casillas had offered him 300 pesos and a pregnant cow if he killed Fidel. The North Americans were not the only ones wrong about the price of our highest commander. In May 1957, two of the North American boys abandoned the column with the journalist Bob Taper, who had finished his story. They'd reached Guantanamo safe and sound. We continued to march slowly along the ridge of the Sierra Maestra. We were making contacts, exploring new regions, and spreading the revolutionary flame and the legend of our barbudos across the Sierra Maestra. The new spirit was communicated far and wide. Peasants came to greet us without so much fear, and we also feared them less. Our relative strength had increased considerably, and we felt more secure. On the march. The first fifteen days of May 1957 were a continual march toward our objective, crossing regions that later became theaters of many revolutionary victories. We passed through Santa Ana and El Ombrito and reached the Loma del Burro. We were moving eastward looking for weapons that were supposed to be sent from Santiago and hidden close to Oro de Giza. One night on this journey, while going to carry out a trivial mission, I confused the paths and was lost for two days until I found everyone again at El Ombrito. I was then able to see for myself that we each carried on our backs everything necessary for individual survival. Salt and oil, very important, canned food and milk, everything required for sleeping, making fire and cooking, and the instrument I had relied on very heavily until then, a compass. 
Finding myself lost, I took out the compass, guiding myself by it until realizing I was becoming even more lost. I approached the peasant hut and the people directed me to the rebel camp. Later we found that in such rugged territory a compass can only provide a general orientation, never a definite course. One has either to be led by guides or to know the terrain. I was very moved by the warm reception that greeted me when I rejoined the column. When I arrived they had just completed a people's trial in which three informers had been judged. One of them, Napoles, was condemned to death. In that period I was still working as a doctor, and in each little village I set up a consultation area. It was monotonous, for I had little medicine to offer, and the clinical cases in the Sierra Maestra were all more or less the same. Prematurely aged and toothless women, children with distended bellies, parasites, rickets, general vitamin deficiencies, these were the stains of the Sierra Maestra. Even today they continue, but to a much smaller degree. The children of those mothers of the Sierra Maestra have gone to study at the Camilo Sinfuego school city. They are growing up unhealthy. Different boys from those first undernourished inhabitants of our pioneer school city. I remember one girl was watching the consultations I was giving to the women of the region. When her mother arrived, the little girl, after attentively watching several previous examinations, chattered gaily, Mama, the doctor says the same thing to everyone. And it was absolutely true. They all had the same clinical symptoms, and they each told the same heartbreaking story. Exhaustion, simply due to too much work on a meager diet. The people in the Sierra Maestra grow like wildflowers, untended and without care, and they wear themselves out rapidly, working without reward. We began to feel in our bones the need for a definitive change in the life of the people. The idea of agrarian reform became clear, and communion with the people ceased being theory and became a fundamental part of our being. The guerrilla group and the peasantry began to merge into one single mass, though no one could say at what point on the long road this happened or at what moment words became reality and we became part of the peasant masses. I only know that for me, those consultations with the peasants of the Sierra Maestra converted my spontaneous and somewhat lyrical resolve into a different, more serene force. It was there that Guillermo Garcia was promoted to captain and took charge of all the peasants who joined the column. The date in my diary is May 6, 1957. The following day, Heidi Santa Maria left with instructions from Fidel to make necessary contacts, but a day later we heard news that Nicaragua Commander Iglesias had been detained. He was in charge of bringing us weapons. We were greatly disconcerted and could not imagine what we would do now in order to get the arms. Nevertheless, we decided to continue. We reached a place near Piño del Agua, a small ravine with an abandoned sawmill on the very edge of the Sierra Maestra. Near a highway, one of our patrols captured an army corporal. This corporal was well known for his crimes since the era of the 1930s dictator Gerardo Machado, and for this reason some of the troops proposed that he be executed, but Fidel refused. We simply left him guarded by the new recruits who did not yet have rifles. He was warned that any attempt to flee would cost him his life. The majority of us continued on our way to see if the weapons had made it to the agreed spot, However, the equipment had not arrived. We bought some food at a store and returned to camp with a different yet welcome load. We were returning at a slow, tired pace, moving along the ridges of the Sierra Maestra and crossing the barren spaces carefully. Suddenly, we heard shots ahead of us. 
We were worried because one of our men had gone ahead, Guillermo Dominguez, lieutenant of our troop. We sent out scouts. The scouts appeared with a compañero named Fiallo, a new recruit belonging to Crescencio's group who had joined the guerrillas during our absence. He explained that there was a dead body on the road and that there had been an encounter with some enemy guards. They had retreated in the direction of Pino de Agua, where there was a larger detachment. We advanced cautiously and came upon the body. It was Guillermo Domingos. He was naked from the waist up and had a bullet hole in the left elbow and a bayonet wound in the upper chest over his heart. His head was literally shattered by a bullet. His bitter fate served us as an example for the future. That day on the radio, we learned of the sentencing of our compañeros from the Gramma. In addition, we learned that a magistrate had directed his particular vote against the sentence. It was Magistrate Manuel Uricia, whose honorable gesture later earned him the position of Provisional President of the Republic. The vote of a magistrate was no more than a worthy gesture, but later it had more serious consequences. It led to the appointment of a bad president incapable of understanding the profound character of a revolution not made for his backward mentality. His character brought a lot of conflict. This, in the days of celebration for the first July 26th after liberation, culminated in his resignation as president in the face of unanimous rejection by the people. On one of those days a contact from Santiago arrived. Andres had precise information about the weapons. They were safe and would be moved in the next few days. A delivery point was fixed in the region of a coastal sawmill operated by the Bavoon brothers. The arms would be delivered with the complicity of these citizens who felt they could do lucrative business by involving themselves in the revolution. Subsequent developments divided the family, and three of the Bavoon sons have had the undignified privilege of being among those gasanos captured by the Bay of Pigs. It is curious to see how in that period a whole range of people tried to make use of the revolution for their own ends, doing small favors in order to later reap rewards from the new government. The Vavon brothers hoped to have a free hand in the commercial exploitation of the woods and the expulsion of the peasants, thereby increasing the size of their estates. Around that time, we were joined by a North American journalist of the same milk as the Vavon family. He was Hungarian by birth, and his name was Andrew St. George. At first, he showed only one of his faces, the less bad one, that of a Yankee journalist. But in addition, he was an FBI agent. Since I was the only person in the column who spoke French, in those days no one spoke English, I was chosen to look out for him. Honestly, he didn't seem to me as dangerous as he proved he was in our second interview when he openly showed himself to be an agent. We were moving around Pino del Agua toward the source of the Peladero River. These were rugged areas and we all carried heavy packs. There is a tributary of the Paladera River in the Oak Creek where we spent a couple of days getting food and moving the arms we had received. We passed through peasant villages, establishing a kind of extra-legal revolutionary state, leaving sympathizers charged with informing us of anything that happened. But we always lived in the woods, only occasionally at night, when we unexpectedly came across a group of houses, did some of us sleep in them. The majority always slept in the protection of the woods, and during the day all of us were on guard, protected by a roof of trees. Our worst enemy at that time of year was the Macuaguera horsefly. As we scratched, giving the dirt on our bodies, the bites were easily infected, occasionally causing abscesses. 
the uncovered parts of our legs, wrists, and necks always bore proof of the presence of the fly. Finally, on May 18th, we received news of the weapons and also a tentative inventory. This news caused great excitement in the camp, for all the men wanted better weapons. We also heard that the film Bob Taper made about the Sierra Maestra had been shown in the United States with great success. This news cheered everyone but Andrew St. George, who left by boat for Santiago de Cuba. The same day we learned the location of our weapons, we also learned that one of our men had deserted, a dangerous predicament since everyone knew of the arrival of the weapons. Patrols were sent to look for him and after some days returned with the news that he had managed to take a boat to Santiago. We presumed that it was to inform the authorities, although it later emerged that the desertion was simply due to the man's physical and moral inability to endure the hardships of our life. In any case, we had to tighten our precautions. Our struggle against the lack of physical, ideological, and moral preparation among the men was daily. The results were not always encouraging. Men often asked permission to leave for the pettiest reasons, and if they were refused, the same thing would happen as in this case. It has to be remembered that desertion was punishable by death immediately upon capture. That night the weapons arrived. For us, the most marvelous spectacle in the world, the instruments of death were on exhibition for the covetous eyes of all the combatants. Three tripod machine guns, three Madsen machine guns, nine M1 carbines, ten Johnson machine guns, and a total of six thousand rounds. Although the M1 carbines had only 45 rounds apiece, they were highly prized weapons and were distributed according to the merits earned by the fighters. One of the tripod machine guns went to Captain Jorge Sorta's platoon, another to Almieda's, and the third to the general staff, for which I had responsibility. In this way I began as a full-time combatant, for until then I had been the troops' doctor, knowing only occasional combat. I had entered a new stage. I will always remember the moment I was given the machine gun, which was old and poor, but to me it was an important acquisition. Four men were assigned to help me with the piece. Four guerrillas who had subsequently followed very different paths. Two of them were the brothers Pupo and Manolo Veton, shot by the revolution after they assassinated Commander Cristino Naranjo and later took up arms in the mountains of Oriente where a peasant captured them. Another was a boy of fifteen, who was almost always to carry the hugely heavy equipment for the machine gun. His name was Joel Iglesias, and today is the president of the Association of Rebel Youth and a commander in the rebel army. The fourth man, today a captain in our rebel army, had the name of Alejandro Ornate, but we affectionately labeled him Cantinflas. The arrival of the weapons did not mean an end to the troops' epic work to gain greater fighting and political strength. A few days later, on May 23rd, Fidel ordered new discharges, among them an entire squadron, and our force was reduced to 127 men. The majority of them armed, about 80 of them well-armed. From the squadron that was dismissed along with its leader, one man alone remained, Crucito José de la Cruz, who later became one of our dearest fighters. Crucito was a natural poet, and he had long rhyming contests with the poet from the city, Calisto Morales. Morales came on the grama and had nicknamed himself Nightingale of the Plains, to which Crucito in his peasant ballads always answered with a refrain directed at mock derision at Calisto, You old Sierra buzzard! This magnificent compañero had put the entire history of the revolution into ballads from the moment of the departure of the grama, 
which he would compose as he smoked his pipe at every rest stop. Since there was very little paper in the Sierra Maestra, he wrote and memorized the ballads by heart, so that none of them remained when a bullet put an end to his life in the Battle of Pino del Alwa. In the region of the sawmill, we had received the invaluable help of Enrique Lopez, an old childhood friend of Fidel and Raul, who was at that time employed by the baboons and served as a supply contact. He also made it possible for us to move through the entire area without danger. The region was full of roads used by army trucks. On various occasions, we prepared ambushes to capture some of them, but we were never able to do it. Perhaps these failures contributed to the success of the approaching operation, which was to have greater psychological impact than any other in the history of the war. I refer to the Battle of El Uferro. On May 25th, we heard news that an expeditionary force led by Calixto Sanchez had arrived in the boat Corinthia and landed at Mayari. A few days later, we were to learn of the disastrous results of this expedition. Carlos Prio Socarras had sent his men to their desk without bothering to accompany them. Hearing of their landing, we saw the pressing need to divert the enemy forces in order to allow the men to reach some place where they could reorganize. All this we did out of solidarity with the other group, even though we did not even know its composition or its true goals. There we had an interesting discussion, led principally by the author of this narrative and Fidel. I believed we should not lose the opportunity of capturing a truck and that we should specifically devote ourselves to ambushing them. But Fidel had already planned in his mind the El Uvero action. He thought it would be more important and would bring us a more resounding success if we could capture the army post at El Uvero. If we succeeded, it would have a tremendous psychological impact and would become known throughout the country. This would not be the case with the capture of a truck, which could be reported as a road accident with a few deaths or injuries, and the effective reality of our presence in the Sierra Maestra would never be known. Today, several years after that discussion, which I was not convinced by at the time, I must recognize that Fidel's judgment was correct. It would have been much less productive for us to carry out an isolated action against one of the truck patrols. In that period, our yearning to fight always led us impatiently to adopt drastic attitudes without seeing the more distant objectives. In any case, we began the final preparations for the Battle of El Uvero. The Battle of El Uvero Having decided on the point of attack, we then had to develop the exact form it would take, ascertaining the number of soldiers present, the number of guard posts, the type of communications they used, the access roads, the civilian population and its distribution, etc. Compañero Giverto Cardero served us admirably in all of this. Today a commander in the rebel army, he is and he was, I believe, the son-in-law of the sawmill manager. We presumed that the army had information on our presence in the area, for we had captured two informers, both carrying army identification documents, and they confessed that Garcias had sent them to ascertain our position. The spectacle of the two men begging for mercy was truly repugnant, yet poignant as well. The rules of war in those difficult times, however, could not be ignored, and both spies were executed the following day. That same day, May 27, 1957, the general staff met with all the officers. Fidel ordered us to have our men and equipment ready to move out. Cardero was to be the guide, for he knew the post of El Uvero perfectly. We marched out that night, 
a long march of some 16 kilometers, but all downhill on roads constructed by the Baboon Company to reach its sawmill. It took us about eight hours, however, as we were slowed down by extra precautions which we had to take as we approached the danger zone. Finally, we were given the orders to attack, which were very simple. We were to take the guard posts and riddle the wooden barracks with bullets. Overlooking this was a hill from which our general staff would direct the battle. We were to approach within a few meters of the building through the trees. Our instructions were not to fire on the outlying buildings since they sheltered women and children. As we moved to take up our attack positions, our greatest concern was for the civilians. The El Uvero barracks was located at the edge of the sea, so that to surround it we had only to attack from three sites. One guard post commanded the coast road from Peladero. The platoons led by Jorge Sotos and Guillermo Garcia were sent to attack it. Almilleda was charged with destroying a guard post facing the mountain to the north. Raúl would advance from the front with his platoon. I was assigned an intermediate post with my machine gun and assistance. Camilo and Amijera were to advance from the front between my position and Raúl's, but they miscalculated because it was dark, and when the battle began, they were fighting on my left instead of my right. Crescencio Pérez's platoon was to advance along the road from El Uvero to Chivirico and hold back whatever army reinforcements were sent. We expected the battle would be quite short, given the surprise element we had prepared. The minutes passed, however, and we could not position our men in the manner we had foreseen. Dan was approaching before we would be in position. When Fidel opened fire, we were able to locate the barracks from the shots that answered within seconds. We were on a small elevation, and I could see the barracks perfectly, but it was a substantial distance away, so we advanced to find better positions. Everyone advanced. Almieda moved toward the post, defending the entrance to the little barracks near him. To my left, I could see Camilo. We advanced cautiously amid the general exchange of fire. Resistance became fierce, and we reached a flat open space where we were forced to advance with infinite precaution, for the enemy fired accurately without pause. From my position hardly fifty meters from the enemy outpost, I saw two soldiers run out of the trench in front of us. I fired at both of them, but they hid in the outlying buildings that were sacred to us. We continued advancing. Bullets whistled past dangerously close. Near me I heard a groan and then some shouts amid the din of battle. I dragged myself forward. It was Compañero Liel, wounded in the head. I found both entrance and exit wounds. Liel was losing consciousness and the only bandage I had was a piece of paper that I placed over the wound. A short time later, Joel Iglesias went to watch over him while we continued the attack. The next thing, Acuña was wounded as well. No longer advancing, we continued to shoot at the well-placed trench in front of us, which responded in kind. We were mustering our courage to capture the warehouse when the barracks surrendered. This had all been told in a few minutes, but the actual battle lasted about two hours and forty-five minutes. On my left, some of the men from the forward guard took the last of the resistors prisoners. From the trench in front of us, a soldier emerged holding his gun above his head. Shouts of surrender came from all sides. We advanced rapidly on the barracks, hearing one last rattle of machine gun fire that I later found out killed Lieutenant Nano Diaz. After the battle, one of the bloodiest we had experienced, we put our heads together to create a more general picture of the action than that described from my personal point of view. The battle proceeded more or less as follows. When Fidel's shot gave the signal to open fire, everyone began to advance. 
the army responded with intense fire in many cases against the hill from where our leader directed the battle. A few minutes into the action, Julito Diaz died at Fidel's side when he was hit directly in the head by a bullet. The fierce resistance continued. We were unable to press toward our goal. The most important task in the center was Almeida's. He was in charge of destroying the guard post to open the way for his and Raul's troops, who were attacking the barracks head-on. The guide, Eligio Mendoza, had taken his rifle and thrown himself into battle. A few minutes later, he fell, hit by a bullet that literally shattered his body. The well-entrenched enemy troops drove us back, causing several of us to fall. It was very difficult to advance through the central area. From along the road to Peladero, Jorge Sotus attempted to flank the position with support from Francisco Soto, but the latter was immediately killed, and Sotus had to dive into the sea to avoid certain death. From that moment he was out of the battle. Other members of his platoon attempted to advance, but they too were forced back. A peasant named Vega, I believe, was killed. Manas was wounded in the lung. Quique Escalona took three wounds as he tried to advance. The enemy post was well protected by a wooden palisade, with machine guns devastating our small troop. Almieda ordered a final assault to attempt to reduce the enemy he faced. Sigueros, Maceos, Ermaleva, Peña were wounded, as was Almieda, and Compañero Mol was killed. Nevertheless, these pushed forward overcame the guard post, and a path to the barracks was opened. From the other side, Guillermo Garcia's confident machine gunning wiped out three of the defenders. The fourth came out running and was killed in flight. Raúl, with his platoon divided in two, advanced rapidly on the barracks. It was the actions of Captains Garcia and Elmieda that decided the battle. Each one destroyed their assigned guard post, making the final assault possible. Also deserving special mention is Luis Crespo, who came down from the general staff position to participate in the battle. The fight lasted two hours and forty-five minutes, and no civilian had been wounded, despite the great number of shots fired. When we took stock of the battle, we found that on our side there were six compañeros dead and others wounded. In all, fifteen compañeros had been put out of action. The enemy had nineteen wounded, fourteen dead, another fourteen prisoners, and six escapees, which made a total of fifty-three men under the command of a second lieutenant who had flown the white flag after being wounded. Considering that we were about eighty men and they were fifty-three, a total of one hundred and thirty-three men, and that thirty-eight of these, more than a quarter, were put out of action in a little over two and a half hours of fighting, it's possible to understand what kind of battle it was. It should be recognized that on both sides great courage was shown. For us, this victory also marked our coming of age. From this battle on, our morale grew tremendously. Our decisiveness and our hopes for triumph also grew. And although the months that followed were difficult, we possessed the secret of victory. The action at El Uvero sealed the fate of all the small barracks situated far from major clusters of enemy forces, and they were all dismantled soon after. One of the first shots of the battle hit the telephone lines, cutting communication with Santiago. Only a couple of light planes flew over the battlefield, but the Air Force sent no reconnaissance planes until hours later when we were already high in the mountains. The most gravely wounded was Compañeros Sierros. A bullet had split open his right arm and, after piercing his lung, had apparently embedded itself in his spine, paralyzing both legs.
His condition was critical. We tried to save him in the only way possible. We took the 14 prisoners with us and left the two wounded guerrillas, Riel and Silleros, with the enemy, on their doctor's word of honor that they would be cared for. When I told this to Silleros, mouthing the usual words of comfort, he answered with a sad smile that more than any words could have expressed his conviction that it was all over. We knew this as well, and I was tempted at that moment to place a farewell kiss on his forehead. Yet coming from me, more than anyone else, such an act would have signified a death sentence for a compañero, and duty told me that I must not make his last minutes more bitter with the confirmation of something he already knew. I said goodbye as sweetly as possible, with enormous pain, to the two fighters who remained in the hands of the enemies, brothers now with nineteen wounded Batista soldiers, who had also been cared for with our full capability. Our two compañeros were decently treated by the enemy army, but Silleros did not reach Santiago. Diel survived his wound, was imprisoned on the Isle of Piñas for the rest of the war, and today bears the indelible marks of that important episode in our Revolutionary War. In one of Bapun's trucks, we held the largest possible quantity of every kind of equipment, especially medical. We left last heading toward our mountain hideout, which we reached in time to care for the wounded and take leave of the dead who were buried at the bend of the road. We realized there would now be an intense pursuit and decided that those men who could walk should distance themselves quickly, leaving the wounded behind in my care. Enrique Lopez was to furnish me with transport, a hiding place, some assistance to help the wounded, and the necessary contacts through which we could receive medicines and properly treat the men. We were awake until morning, each describing the twists and turns of battle. Almost no one slept as we heard from each man their personal experiences or those they had witnessed. Out of statistical curiosity, I took note of all the enemy soldiers supposedly killed during the battle. There were more enemy corpses than there had been enemy soldiers. Fantasy adorned each man's feats. These and other similar episodes taught us that all facts needed validating by several people being overcautious, we even demanded physical proof, such as items taken from a fallen soldier, before we accepted an enemy casualty. Preoccupation with the truth was always a central theme in the reports of the rebel army, and we attempted to imbue our men with a profound respect for truth and a feeling of how necessary it was to place truth above any transitory advantage. In the morning, we watched the departure of the victorious troop, sadly bidding us farewell. My assistants, Joel Iglesias and Oñate, stayed with me, as well as a guide named Senecio Torres and Vilo Acuña, today a commander in the rebel army, who stayed to be with his wounded uncle. Caring for the Wounded From dawn on the day after the Battle of El Uvero, planes circled above. Our farewells to the departing column were over, and we dedicated ourselves to erasing the signs of our entry into the woods. We were only some one hundred meters from a truck access road, and we waited for Enrique Lopez, who was coming to help us make it to our hideout. Almilleda and Peña could not walk, neither could Quique Escalona. I recommended Manaus not walk either because of the wound in his lung. Manuel Acuña, Hermes Leiva, and Maceo could all walk on their own. To defend, nurse, and transport them, there were Vilo Acuña, the guide Senecio Torres, Joel Iglesias, Alejandro Onate, and myself. We were well into the morning when a messenger came to tell us that Enrique Lopez could not help us because his daughter was ill and he had to leave for Santiago. 
He also said he was sending us some volunteers to help, but we are still waiting for them today. The situation was difficult. Kike Escalona's wounds were infected and I could not determine the gravity of Manal's injuries. We explored the nearby woods without encountering enemy soldiers and decided to move the wounded to a peasant hut three or four kilometers away. The owner had abandoned it, leaving behind a good number of chickens. On the first day, two workers from the sawmill helped us with the grueling work of carrying the wounded in hammocks. At dawn on the following day, after eating well and downing a large ration of chicken, we quickly left, for we had stayed there a whole day after the attack, practically in the same place, close to roads by which enemy soldiers could arrive. With our few available men, we started on a short but very difficult trek down to Indio Creek. We then climbed a narrow path to a small shack where a peasant named Israel lived with his wife and brother-in-law. Moving our wounded compañeros through such a rugged terrain was grueling work, but we did it, and the two peasants even gave us their own double bed for the wounded to sleep in. We spent that night in the hospitable little hut, but at dawn we moved into the woods, first asking the owners of the house to find some hands for the wounded. We spent the whole day waiting for the couple, but they did not return. Nearing nightfall, Senecio arrived with three volunteers, an old man named Feliciano, and two men who later became members of the rebel army. These were Teodoro Banderas, killed in the Battle of Higüe, and Israel Pardo, who today holds the rank of captain. These compañeros helped us to quickly move the wounded to a hut on the other side of the danger zone, while Senecio and I waited practically until nightfall for the peasant couple bringing food. They couldn't come, of course, because they were already prisoners. Suspecting a betrayal, we decided to leave the new house early the next day. Our frugal meal consisted of some root vegetables put near the hut. The following day, six months after the landing of the grama, we began our march early. We could carry only one wounded compañero at a time, and we had to carry them in hammocks hanging from strong branches that literally ruined the shoulders of the carriers. Carriers had to relieve each other every ten or fifteen minutes, so that we needed six or eight to carry each wounded man. I accompanied Almieda, who was half-dragging himself along. We walked very slowly, almost from tree to tree, until Israel found a shortcut to the woods and the carriers came back for Almieda. Afterward, a tremendous downpour made it difficult for us to reach Pardo's house, but we finally got there close to nightfall. The short distance of four kilometers had been covered in twelve hours. We were fortunate to have Sanesio Torres with our small group, as he knew the roads and the locals, and he helped us in everything. He was the one who two days later arranged for Manaus to go to Santiago for treatment. We were also preparing to send Quique Escalona, whose wounds were infected. On the banks of the Peladero River lived the overseer of a large land estate, David Gomez, and he cooperated greatly with us. Once David killed a cow for us, and we simply had to go out and get it. The animal had been slaughtered on the riverbank and cut into pieces. We had to move the meat by night. I sent the first group with Israel Pardo in front, and then the second led by Banderas. Banderas was quite undisciplined and did not follow the orders. He let the others carry the full weight of the carcass, and it took all night to move it. A small troop was now being formed under my command since Almieda was wounded. Conscious of my responsibility, I notified Banderas that unless he changed his attitude, he was no longer a combatant, but merely a sympathizer. He really did change then. He was never the model of a fighter when it came to discipline, but he was one of those enterprising and broad-minded men, simple and ingenuous, who opened his eyes to reality through the shock of the revolution. 
He had been cultivating a small isolated parcel of land in the woods, and he had a true passion for trees and agriculture. He lived in a small shack with two little pigs, each with its name, and a little dog. One day he showed me a portrait of his two sons who lived with his ex-wife and Santiago. He explained to me that someday when the revolution triumphed, he would be able to go someplace where he could really grow something, not like this inhospitable piece of land almost hanging from the mountaintop. I spoke to him of cooperatives, though he did not understand my point very well. He wanted to work the land on his own, by his own efforts. Nevertheless, little by little, I managed to convince him that it was better to work among others, that machinery would increase his productivity. Banderas would today have undoubtedly been a vanguard fighter in the area of agricultural production. In the Sierra Maestra, he taught himself to read and write and was preparing for the future. He was an enlightened peasant who knew the value of contributing his own efforts to writing a page of history. I had a long conversation with the overseer David, who asked me for a list of all the important things we needed. He was going to Santiago and would pick them up there. He was a typical overseer, loyal to his boss, contemptuous of the peasants, racist. When the army, however, learned of his relations with us and took him prisoner and tortured him barbarously, his first concern on returning was to convince us, who had thought him dead, that he did not talk. I do not know if David is in Cuba today, or if he followed his old bosses, whose land was confiscated by the revolution. Although he was a man who felt the need for change, who understood how urgent change was, he never imagined that it would also reach him and his world. The revolution has been built on the sincere efforts of many ordinary people. Our mission is to develop what is good and noble in each person, to convert every person into a revolutionary, from the Davids who did not understand well, to the Bandereses who died without seeing the dawn. Blind and unrewarded sacrifices also made the revolution. Those of us today who see its achievements have the responsibility to remember those who fell along the way and to work for a future where there will be fewer stragglers. Return Journey We spent the whole month of June 1957 nursing our compañeros wounded in the Battle of El Uvero and organizing our small troop which would return to Vidal's column. Senecio began showing signs that he was losing revolutionary morale. He got drunk on movement money and committed drunken indiscretions. He also neglected to carry out the orders he received, and after one of his binges, he brought us eleven raw, unarmed recruits, disobeying an express order. We generally tried to prevent unarmed men from enlisting, but Senecio was not the only one to ignore this. New people were joining the young guerrilla force by every means and under all conditions, and the peasants, knowing where we were, often brought us new compañeros who wished to enlist. No fewer than forty people passed through our little column, but desertions were constant, sometimes with our consent, other times against our will, so the troop never had more than twenty-five or thirty effective members. My asthma was aggravated, and the lack of medicine meant I was almost as immobile as the wounded. I was able to relieve the illness somewhat by smoking dried clarine flowers, a local remedy, until medicine arrived from civilization. This helped me to restore my health in preparation for our leaving. Finally, we fixed our departure date for June 24th. Our army, five recuperating wounded, five assistants, ten new recruits from Bayamo, four new recruits from the vicinity, and two others who just showed up on their own, a total of twenty-six. 
The march was organized with Vilok Acuña as head of the forward guard. Next, what could be called the general staff, which I led since Almieda, with his wounded thigh, had enough work just walking, and two other small squadrons led by Maceo and Peña. Peña was a lieutenant at that time. Maceo and Vilo were combatants, and Almieda, as captain, held the highest rank. We did not leave on June 24th because of some small inconveniences. First, it was announced that one of the guides was arriving with a new recruit, and we had to wait for them. Then we heard that the guide was coming with a new supply of medicine and food. Pancho Tamayo, an old peasant from the area, came and went constantly, bringing news and supplies of canned food and clothing. At one point we had to find a cave to leave some of our supplies, because our contacts in Santiago had finally come through and David brought us an important shipment which was impossible to transport, given that we were marching with convalescents and raw recruits. On June 26th, I debuted as dentist, although in the Sierra Maestra, I was given the more modest title of Tooth Puller. My first victim was Israel Pardo, today a captain in the army, who came out of it pretty well. The second was Joel Iglesias, who would have needed a stick of dynamite to remove the canine tooth. In fact, he saw out the end of the war with the tooth still in place. Besides the meagerness of my skill, we had no anesthetic, so I frequently used psychological anesthesia, a few harsh epithets when my patients complained too much about the work going on in their mouths. Even the thought of marching caused some of the indecisive men to leave us, but new ones replaced them. Old Tamayo brought us a group of four men, among them was Felix Mendoza, who came with a rifle. He explained that an army troop had surprised him and his compañero, and while the other man was arrested, he threw himself over a rocky outcrop and ran without harm from the enemy. We later learned that the army was a patrol led by Lalo Sardinas. We were also joined by Evelio Savorit, today a commander in the rebel army. With the arrival of Felix Mendoza and his group, we were now thirty-six men, but the following day three left, then others joined us, and we numbered thirty-five. When the march started, however, our number once again diminished. We were climbing the slopes of Peladero, making very little progress each day. The radio informed us of a panorama of violence throughout the island. On July 1st, we heard news of the death of Josu Pais, Frank's brother, along with other compañeros, killed in the ongoing battle being waged in Santiago. Despite the short marches, our troops felt demoralized, and some of the new recruits asked whether they could leave in order to carry out more useful missions in the city. On the way down the La Botella Hill, we passed the house of Benito Mora, who entertained us in his humble abode that clung to the steep rocks of that part of the Sierra Maestra. Shortly before arriving at Mora's, I called the little troop together, telling the men that dangerous moments were approaching, that the army was close, that probably we would have to pass many days without food, walking almost without a break. I urged whoever did not feel capable of it to say so now. Some were frank enough to speak their fears, and they left. Another, named Chicho Fernandez, swore in the name of a small group that they would all follow us until death. He spoke with such conviction and extraordinary decisiveness that we were truly surprised when, after passing Benito Mora's house and camping beside a small creek for the night, this same group communicated its desire to leave the guerrilla force. We agreed jokingly baptizing the place Death Creek for Chicho's tremendous determination and that of his friends had lasted only until that point. That name of that streak of water stuck until we left the Sierra Maestra. 
We were left with 28 men, but on leaving the next day, we were joined by two new recruits, ex-soldiers who came to fight for freedom in the Sierra Maestra. They were Giverto Caporte and Nicolas. Aristides Guerra brought them, another of the local contacts who was later an invaluable asset to our column and whom we called Chow King. During the whole war, Chow King did us innumerable services, and many times these were more dangerous than fighting against the enemy, such as moving mule teams from Bayamo to our area of operations. As we made our short marches, we tried to familiarize the new recruits with their weapons. We had the two ex-soldiers teach them something about handling a rifle, how to load and unload, dry-run shooting, etc. Bad luck had it that no sooner had the lessons begun then one of the instructors fired a shot. We had to remove him from the job. The two ex-soldiers could not endure the march and left again with Aristides, but Giberto Capote returned to us later, dying heroically in the Pino del Agua with the rank of lieutenant. We left where we had camped, Polo Torres' house at La Mesa, which later became one of our operation centers. We were led now by a peasant named Tuto Almieda. Our mission was to reach La Nevada and make it to Vidal's camp by crossing the north face of Turquino. We were walking in that direction, when in the distance we saw two peasants who tried to flee unseeing us. We ran after them and they turned out to be two Afro-Cuban girls with the last name of Moya. They were Adventists, and even though their beliefs meant they were against violence of any kind, they gave us their full support at that time and for the duration of the war. We ate magnificently and regained some strength, but when we passed through Mar Verde to reach Nevada, we discovered there were army troops throughout the whole region. After brief deliberation, our little general staff and the guides decided we should fall back and cross directly over to Kino Peak, a rougher route but less dangerous in these circumstances. We caught some disquieting news on our small transistor radio. They said that heavy battles were being fought in the region of Estrada Palma and that Raúl was badly wounded. Today, with the time that has passed, I cannot actually say whether we heard this on our radio or from Radio Bemba, the grapevine. We did not know whether to believe the news. Prior experience had taught us to mistrust all such reports, but we tried to quicken our pace in order to reach Fidel as soon as possible. We marched throughout the night, spending part of it in the house of a lone peasant called Vizqueno because of his Basque origins. He lived in the Turquino foothills, completely alone in a small hut, and his only friends were some Marxist books, which he guarded carefully in a small hole beneath a stone, away from his hut. He proudly displayed his militant Marxism, which few people in the zone knew about. Vizqueno showed us which path to follow, and we continued our slow march. Sinesio was getting farther and farther from his own district, and for a simple soul like him, now a little out of his depth, this brought only anguish. One fine day, during a rest-up, while a new recruit named Cuervo was on guard with his Remington rifle given to him for his good nature, Sanacio Torres joined him at the post, also carrying a rifle. When I heard of this about half an hour later, I went to find them, because I had little confidence in Sanacio and rifles were rather precious. But both of them had already deserted. Banderas and Israel Pardo went after them. They did not find the deserters on that occasion. It was very difficult to maintain troop morale, without weapons, without direct contact with the leader of the revolution. We were practically feeling our way, inexperienced and surrounded by enemies who loomed like giants in our imaginations and in the tales of the peasants. The reluctance of the recruits from the plains and their unfamiliarity with the thousand difficulties on the steep paths 
provoked an ongoing crisis in the spirit of our guerrilla band. There was an attempted desertion led by an individual named El Mexicano, who had reached the rank of captain, and today is in Miami, a traitor to the revolution. I found out about it when Compañero Hermes Leiva denounced them. I called a meeting to confront the problem. El Mexicano swore on all his ancestors that even though he had thought of leaving, he had no intention of deserting the struggle. He had meant to form a small guerrilla band to assault and kill informers, for there was so little action in our forces. In reality, he wanted to kill informers for their money, typical banditry. In a subsequent battle at El Ombrito, Hermes was our only casualty, and we were always left with the suspicion that El Mexicano could have been the principal author of the event, since Hermes had denounced him earlier. El Mexicano remained in the column, giving his word as a man and a revolutionary, etc., that he would not leave or attempt to leave or incite anyone else to do so. After short arduous marches, we reached the region of Palma Mocha on the western slope of Turquino near Los Cuevas. The peasants received us very well, and we established direct contact through my new profession as tooth-puller, which I exercised with great enthusiasm. We ate and gained strength to continue rapidly to the familiar regions of Palma Mocha and Arroyo del Infierno, arriving on June 15th. On June 16th, our small new column met the platoon from Fidel's column, led by Lalo Sardinas. We learned that once again the obstinate Sanchez Mosquera had penetrated the region of the Palma Mocha River, and that Fidel's column had almost closed in on him, but they managed to elude Fidel by crossing Turquino on forced marches, reaching the other side of the mountain. We already had some news of the proximity of the troops. A few days earlier, on reaching a peasant hut, we saw the trenches soldiers had occupied until the previous day. We did not suspect that what seemed to be proof of a sustained offensive against us was in reality a sign of the retreat of the repressive column, marking a qualitative change in the operations in the Sierra Maestra. We now had sufficient strength to surround the enemy and obliged it, under the threat of annihilation, to withdraw. The enemy understood this lesson very well and made only sporadic incursions into the Sierra Maestra. But one of the most tenacious, aggressive, and bloodthirsty enemy officers was Sanchez Mosquera, who rose from a simple lieutenant in 1957 to colonel, a rank awarded him after the final defeat of the Army's general offensive in June the following year. His career path was meteoric and lucrative, in that he robbed the peasants mercilessly each time he and his troops penetrated the labyrinth of the Sierra Maestra. A Betrayal in the Making It was a pleasure to look at our troop again, close to two hundred men, with more discipline, much better morale, and some new weapons among us. The qualitative change I have already mentioned was now quite evident in the Sierra Maestra. There was a genuinely liberated territory, and measures of precaution were not as necessary. There was a certain amount of freedom to converse throughout the night while resting in our hammocks, and we were allowed to visit the villages of the people in the Sierra Maestra, establishing better relationships with them. This welcome given us by our old compañeros gave us great joy. Felipe Pasos and Raúl Chivas were the stars of those days, although they were two totally different personalities. Raúl Chivas lived solely off the reputation of his brother Eduardo, who had been a real symbol of an era in Cuba. But he had none of his brother's virtues. He was neither articulate, nor wise, nor even intelligent. 
Only his complete mediocrity allowed him to be a unique and symbolic figure in the Orthodox party. He spoke very little and wanted to leave the Sierra Maestra at once. Felipe Passos had the standing of a great economist and a reputation for honesty, one by not stealing from the public treasury while he was president of the National Bank under Carlos Prio Socarra's regime, a regime marked by gross larceny and embezzlement. A magnificent merit, one might think, to remain unpolluted throughout those years, but how can one be a revolutionary without daily condemning the inconceivable abuses of the period? Felipe Passos skillfully managed to keep his mouth shut, and following Batista's coup, he left the position of president of the National Bank, adorned with his great reputation for honesty, intelligence, and talent as an economist. Smugly, he thought he would come to the Sierra Maestra and take control. This miniature Machiavelli thought he was destined to control the country's future. It is possible that he had already contemplated the idea of betraying the movement. Perhaps this came later, but his conduct was never entirely honest. Basing himself on the joint declaration, the Sierra Manifesto that I am about to analyze, Passos appointed himself representative of the July 26 movement in Miami and was going to be designated Provisional President of the Republic. In this way, Prio was assured that he had a man he could trust in the leadership of this provisional government. We had little time to talk in those days, but Fidel told me about his efforts to make the document truly militant, to lay the basis for a declaration of principles. A difficult task when faced with those two Stone Age minds immune to the call of the people's struggle. Fundamentally, the manifesto issued the slogan of a great civic revolutionary front comprising all opposition political parties, all civic institutions, and all revolutionary forces. It made a series of proposals, the formation of a civic revolutionary front in a common front of struggle, the appointment of an individual to head the provisional government, an explicit declaration that the front would neither call for nor accept intervention by another nation and Cuba's internal affairs, and that it would not accept any sort of military junta as a provisional government of the republic. The document expressed the determination to remove the army from politics entirely and guarantee the non-political nature of the armed forces. It declared that elections would be held within one year. The program, which was to serve as a basis for provisional government, proclaimed freedom for all political prisoners, civilian and military, an absolute guarantee of freedom of the press and radio, with all individual and political rights to be guaranteed by the Constitution, the appointment of provisional mayors in all municipalities, after consultation with the civic institutions of the locality, the suppression of all forms of government corruption, and the adoption of measures designed to enhance the efficiency of all state bodies, the establishment of a civil service, the democratization of trade union politics, promoting free elections in all trade unions and industry-wide union federations, the immediate launching of an all-out drive against illiteracy and for public education, stressing the rights and duties of the citizens in relation to society and the homeland, putting in place the foundation for an agrarian reform designed to distribute unused land and transform into owners all the sugarcane growers who rent the land and all the sharecroppers, tenant farmers, and squatters who work small plots of land owned by either the state or private persons after payment of compensation to the former owners. 
the adoption of a healthy fiscal policy to safeguard our currency's stability and aimed at investing the nation's credit in productive works, and the acceleration of the industrialization process and creation of new jobs. In addition, there were two points of special emphasis. First, the need to appoint from this point forward a person who will preside over the provisional government of the republic to show the entire world that the Cuban people can unite behind a call for freedom and to support that person who, for their impartiality, integrity, capability, and decency, could personify such a stand. There are more than enough able people in Cuba to preside over the republic. Naturally, Felipe Passos, at least, one of the signatories, knew in his heart of hearts that there were not more than enough men. There was only one, and he was it. Second, that this person shall be appointed by all the civic and therefore apolitical institutions whose support would free the provisional president from commitments to any party, ensuring absolutely clean and impartial elections. The document also stated, It is not necessary to come to the Sierra Maestra for discussions. We can have representatives in Havana, Mexico, or wherever else is necessary. Fidel had pressed for more explicit statements regarding the agrarian reform, but it was very difficult to break the monolithic front of the two cavemen, putting in place the foundations for an agrarian reform designed to distribute unused land. This was precisely the kind of policy the Diario de la Marina might agree with, and to make it worse, after payment of compensation to former owners. The revolution did fulfill some of the commitments as originally stated. We must emphasize that the enemy, Pasos et al., broke the tacit pact expressed in the manifesto when they refused to acknowledge the authority of the Sierra and made an attempt to shackle the future revolutionary government. We were not satisfied with the agreement, but it was necessary, and at that moment it was progressive. It could not last beyond the moment when it would represent a break on the revolution's development, but we were ready to comply with it. By their treachery, the enemy helped us to break uncomfortable bonds and show the people these individuals' true intentions. We knew the program was a minimum that it limited our efforts but we also had to recognize that it was impossible to impose our will from the Sierra Maestra. For a long period, we would have to depend upon a whole range of friends who were trying to utilize our military strengths and the great trust that the people already felt in Fidel Castro for their own macabre maneuvers. Above all, they wanted to maintain imperialist domination of Cuba through its imported bourgeoisie closely linked with their masters to the north. The manifesto had its positive side. It mentioned the Sierra Maestra and stated explicitly, Let no one be deceived by government propaganda about the situation in the Sierra Maestra. The Sierra Maestra is already an indestructible bastion of freedom, which has taken root in the hearts of our compatriots, and it is from here that we will know how to honor the faith and confidence of our people. The words, we will know how, in reality meant that Fidel Castro knew how for the other two were incapable of following, even as spectators, the development of the struggle of the Sierra Maestra. They left immediately. Both of them went to the United States. It was a well-planned coup. A group of the most distinguished representatives of the Cuban oligarchy arrived in the Sierra Maestra in defense of freedom, signed a joint declaration with the Gadela chief imprisoned in the wilds of the Sierra Maestra, 
and left with full freedom to play this trump card from Miami. They failed to take into account that the true success of political coups is dependent upon the opponent's strength. In this case, the weapons were in the hands of the people. Quick action by our leader, who had full confidence in the guerrilla army, prevented the betrayal's success. Months later, when the results of the Miami Pact became known, Fidel's fiery reply paralyzed the enemy. We were accused of being divisive and of trying to impose our will from the Sierra Maestra, but they had to change their tactics and prepare a new trap, the Caracas Pact. The Sierra Manifesto, dated July 12, 1957, was published in the newspapers of the time. For us, this declaration was nothing more than a brief pause on the road. Our fundamental task to defend the oppressor's army on the battlefield had to continue. A new column was being organized then, with myself in charge, and I became a captain. There were other promotions. Ramido Valdez became a captain, and his platoon joined my column. Ciro Ridondo was also promoted to captain. The column was made up of three platoons. The first, led by Lalo Sardinas, made up the forward guard, and he was also second in command. Ramido Valdez and Ciro Ridondo led the other two platoons. Our column, named the Evicted Peasants, was made up of close to 75 men, variously dressed and armed. Nonetheless, I was very proud of them. I felt even closer to the revolution, if that were possible, even more anxious to prove my military award was well deserved. We sent a letter of congratulations and appreciation to Carlos, Frank Pais's underground name, who was living his final days. It was signed by all the officers of the Carilla army who knew how to write. The signatures appeared in two columns, and as we wrote down the ranks in the second one, when my turn came, Fidel simply said, Make it commander. In this most informal way, I became commander of the second column of the guerrilla army, which would later become known as column number four. The latter was the guerrilla fighters' warm message to their brother in the city, fighting so heroically in Santiago to obtain supplies for us and alleviate the enemy's pressure. There is a bit of vanity hiding within every one of us, and I felt like the proudest man in the world that day. The symbol of my promotion, a small star, was given to me by Celia and came with a gift, one of the wristwatches ordered from Manzanillo. With my recently formed column, my first task was to set a trap for Sanchez Mosquera, but he was the most devious of all of Batista's henchmen and had already left the area. We had to justify the semi-independent life we were to lead and what was to be our new zone, the region of El Ombrito, where we were headed, so we began to plan a range of great deeds. We had to prepare to celebrate with dignity the approaching glorious date of July 26th, and Fidel gave me free reign to do whatever I could with prudence. At the last meeting we met a new doctor who had joined the guerrilla forces, Sergio de Valle, now chief of the general staff of our revolutionary army. At that time he practiced his profession as the conditions of the Sierra Maestra allowed. We needed to prove we were still alive, since we had received a few setbacks on the plains. Weapons from the Miranda sugar mill that were to be used to open another front had been seized by the police, and several valuable leaders, among them Faustino Perez, had been captured. Fidel had opposed dividing our forces, but had ceded to the demands of the Llano Compañeros. The correctness of Fidel's view was demonstrated, and from then on we devoted ourselves to strengthening the Sierra as the first step toward expanding the guerrilla army.
the attack on Boisito. Our new independence brought with it new problems. We had to establish rigid discipline, organize commands, and establish some form of general staff in order to assure success and new battles. Not an easy task, given the lack of discipline of the combatants. No sooner had we formed the detachment than a beloved compañero left us, Lieutenant Maceo. He went to Santiago on a mission, and we would never see him again, for he yielded there in battle. We also made a few promotions. Compañero William Rodriguez became lieutenant, as well as Raúl Castro Mercader. With this, we were trying to give shape to our small guerrilla force. We began to elaborate a highly ambitious plan, which consisted first of attacking Estrada Palma by night, then capturing the small garrisons in the nearby villages of Yara and Veguitas, returning to the mountains by the same route. In this way, counting on the element of surprise, we could take three barracks and one assault. We had some firing practice, using bullets sparingly, and found that all our weapons were good, except for the very old and very dirty Madsen machine gun. In a short note to Fidel, we outlined our plan and asked for his approval. We did not receive an answer, but over the radio on July 27th, we learned of the attack on Estrada Palma by 200 men led, according to the official report, by Raúl Castro. The magazine Bohemia, in its only uncensored issue published during the period, ran an article describing the damage inflicted by our troops at Estrada Palma, where the old barracks was burned down. It also mentioned Fidel Castro, Celia Sanchez, and an entire pleiad of revolutionaries who had come down from the mountains. Truth was mixed with myth as happens in these cases, and the journalists could not untangle the two. In reality, the attack was launched not by 200 men, but by many fewer, and it was led by Commander Guillermo Garcia. There had been no real combat because Colonel Barrera had retreated shortly before, logically fearing that there would be heavy attacks on July 26th. The following day, army troops gave chase to our guerrillas, and one of our men was captured. After hearing this news, we decided to rapidly attack another barracks. On July 30th, Lalo Sardinas made contact with an old friend, a merchant in the mining region named Armando Oliver. We made an appointment in a house near the California zone, and there we met with him and Jorge Avich. We spoke of our intentions to attack Minas and Doisito. It was a risky step to put the secret in the hands of other people, but Lalo Sardinas knew and trusted these compañeros. Armando told us that on Sundays Casillas passed through the area, he had a sweetheart there. We agreed that we would launch the attack on the following night, July 31st. Armando Oliver would take charge of getting us trucks, guides, and a miner who could blow up the bridges linking the Vaisito Highway with that of Manzanillo Bayamo. At 2 p.m. on the following day, we set out. We spent a couple of hours getting to the crest of the Sierra Maestra, where we hid all our packs and continued with only our field equipment. We had to march a long time and quite often passed houses, in one of which a party was going on. We called all the partygoers together and read them the riot act, making it clear we would hold them responsible if our presence was discovered. We hurried on. The danger of these encounters was of course not very great, for there was no telephone or any other means of communication in the Sierra Maestra in those days, and an informer would have to have run to arrive before us. We reached the house of Compañero Santi Esteban, who placed a pickup truck at our disposal. We also had two other trucks Armando Oliver had sent us. 
With the entire troop riding in the trucks, we reached the village of Minas in just on three hours. The rear guard remained here under the command of Lieutenant Vilo Acuña, and we continued with the rest of the men to the outskirts of Boisito. At the entrance to the village, we stopped a coal truck and sent it on ahead with one of our men to see if there were army guards on watch, but there was no one. Our plan, Lalo Sardinas, would attack the west side of the barracks. Ramiro and his platoon would surround it completely. Ciro, with the machine gun belonging to the general staff squadron, would be ready to attack from the front. Armando Oliver would arrive casually by car, suddenly illuminating the guards with his headlights. At that moment, Ramirito's men would invade the barracks and take everyone prisoner. At the same time, precautions had to be taken to capture all the guards sleeping in their houses. Lieutenant Noda's squadron, Noda died later in the attack at Pino del Agua, was charged with detaining all vehicles on the highway until shooting began, and William was sent to blow up the bridge connecting Vaisito with the central highway to slow down the enemy forces. The plan never materialized. It was too difficult for inexperienced men unfamiliar with the terrain. Ramiro lost some of his men during the night and arrived late, and the car did not arrive, and at one point some dogs barked loudly while our troops were getting into position. As I was walking along the main streets of the village, a man came out of a house. I shouted, Stop! Who is it? The man, thinking I was a soldier, identified himself. They were all guard! When I aimed my gun at him, he ran back into the house, slamming the door, and I heard the sounds of falling tables and chairs and breaking glass as he ran through the house. There was, I suppose, a tacit agreement between the two of us. I could not shoot, since the important thing was to take the barracks, and he did not shout a warning to his companions. We advanced cautiously, and were putting the last man in position, when the barracks guard moved forward, alerted by the barking dogs, and probably by the noise of my encounter with the rural guard. We came face to face with each other, only a few meters apart. I had my Thompson cocked, and he had his garand. Israel Pardo was with me. I shouted, Stop! and the man with the garand at the ready went to move. That was sufficient. I pulled the trigger with the aim of shooting him in the chest, but the gun failed, and I was left defenseless. Israel Pardo tried to shoot, but his defective little twenty-two rifle did not discharge either. I don't really know how Israel came out of this alive. I only remember that beneath a shower of bullets from the soldier's garand, I ran at a speed I have never again matched, and flying through the air, turned the corner to land in the next cross street where I fixed my Thompson. The soldier, however, had unwittingly given the signal to attack, as his was the first shot to ring out. On hearing shots from all sides, the intimidated soldier hid behind a column where we found him at the end of the battle that lasted only minutes. While Israel went to make contact, the gun battle stopped and we received notice of their surrender. When Ramirito's men heard the first shot, they moved in and attacked the barracks from the rear, firing through a wooden door. There were twelve guards in the barracks, six of whom were wounded. We suffered one loss. Compañero Pedro Rivera was shot in the chest. Three of our men had light wounds. We set fire to the barracks after removing everything that might be useful to us and left in the trucks, taking with us as prisoners the post sergeant and an informer named Oran. Villagers along the way offered us cold beer and refreshments, for dawn had broken. The small wooden bridge near the central highway had been blown up. After the last truck passed, we blew up another small bridge over a stream. The miner who did it became a new member of the troop, and he was a valuable acquisition. His name was Cristino Naranjo. 
He later became a commander and was murdered in the days following the triumph of the revolution. We continued on and reached Minas, where we stopped to hold a small meeting. As part of the comedy, one of the Abich family shopkeepers in the area begged us in the name of the people to free the sergeant and the informer. We explained that we held them prisoner to guarantee with their lives that there would be no reprisals in the village, but he was so insistent that we agreed. So the two prisoners were released and the people's safety assured. Before leaving for Sierra Maestra, we buried our compañero in their town cemetery. At Altos de California, we left the trucks and distributed the new weapons. Although my participation in the battle had been minimal and nothing heroic, I took a Browning machine gun, the jewel of the barracks, leaving the old Thompson and its dangerous bullets which never fired at the right moments. The best arms were distributed to the best fighters, and we dismissed those who acted poorly, including the wet ones, a group of men who had fallen into the river as they were fleeing the first shots. When we reached the hills again, we learned that a state of emergency had been declared and censorship re-established. We also heard of the great loss suffered by the revolution. Frank Pais had been murdered in the streets of Santiago. With his death, one of the purest and most glorious lives of the Cuban revolution ended, and the people of Santiago, Havana, and now Cuba took to the streets in the spontaneous August strike. The government's semi-censorship became total censorship, and we entered a new period characterized by the silence of the pseudo-oppositionist chatterboxes and by savage murders committed by Batista's thugs throughout Cuba, which spread the war to the entire country. In Frank Pais, we lost one of our most valiant fighters, but the reaction to his assassination showed that new forces were joining the struggle and the fighting spirit of the people was growing. The Battle of El Umbrito The column was in the valley of El Umbrito. Our force was still very green, but a revolutionary war obliged us to be ready to attack any enemy columns invading that part of the Sierra Maestra, which by then was becoming known as the liberated territory of Cuba. On the night of August 29, 1957, a peasant informed us that a large troop was preparing to ascend the Sierra Maestra along the road to El Umbrito, which continues to Altos de Conrado to cross the mountains. We had been cured of falling for false information, and I took the man hostage and ordered him to tell the truth, threatening him with terrible punishment if he lied. But he swore that the soldiers were already at Julio Zapatero's farm a couple of kilometers from the Sierra Maestra. We moved into position by night. Lalo Sardinia's platoon was to occupy the eastern flank in a grove of ferns and opened fire on the column when it stopped. Ramido Valdez, leading those men with less firepower, was to cover the western flank. Their possession was less dangerous because the guards would have to cross a deep ravine to reach them. The path by which the enemy would be coming boarded the side of the hill where Lalo was concealed. Ciro would attack them from the side. With a small column of the best-armed shooters, I would open hostilities with the first shot. The plan was simple. When the enemy reached a bend in the path, turning around a boulder, I was to let ten or twelve soldiers pass and then shoot the last one. Then the others would be annihilated rapidly by my men. Raul Mercader's squadron would advance. The weapons of the dead would be taken, and we would retreat at once, protected by the fire of the rear guard led by Lieutenant Vilo Acuña. At dawn, in a coffee grove, the position assigned to Ramiro Valdez, we were looking toward Julio Zapatero's house below us on the mountain slope. 
As the sun rose, we saw soldiers going in and out in early morning routines. All our men were ready in their combat positions. I went to my post, and we watched the first men of the column climbing laboriously. The wait was interminable. Finally, we heard their unworried voices and raucous shouts. The first one passed, the second, the third, and I calculated that they were so spread out we wouldn't have enough time for the dozen to pass as planned. When I counted the sixth, I heard a shout from my head. I opened fire immediately, and the six men fell. Then the gun battle spread, and at the second burst from my machine gun, the men disappeared from the path. I ordered Raoul Mercader's squadron to attack. The enemy was receiving fire from both flanks. Lieutenant Orestes, Raoul Mercader, Alfonso Zayas, Alcibiades Bermudez, and Rodolfo Vasquez, among others, advanced and fired on the enemy column, which was under the direction of Major Merob Sosa. Rodolfo Vasquez took the weapon of the soldier I had wounded. To our regret, he turned out to be a medic and carried only the forty-five revolver of the rural guard. The other five men had escaped, scrambling off the path and retreating along a nearby riverbed. We began to hear the first bazooka shots fired by the enemy troops, now recovered from their shock at our surprise attack. The Maxim machine gun was the only weapon of any weight we had, apart from my machine gun, but Julio Perez, who was assigned to it, failed to get it to work. I ordered the two lateral platoons to retreat, and when they began to move, we also began our retreat, leaving the rear guard in charge of maintaining fire. A little later, Vilo Acuna returned, having accomplished his mission, announcing the death of Hermes Leiva. In the course of our withdrawal, we came across a platoon sent by Fidel, whom I had notified of the imminent class with superior enemy forces. Captain Ignacio Perez led the group. We retreated some thousand meters from the battlefield and established a new ambush for the soldiers. They arrived at the small plateau where the battle had taken place, and before our very eyes they burned Hermes Leva's body. In our impotent anger, we were limited to firing our rifles, which they answered with bazookas. This battle proved to us how ill-prepared for combat our troop was, unable to fire accurately at a moving enemy line from close range. Notwithstanding, it was a great triumph for us, as we had stopped Merab Sosa's column, which retreated at nightfall. This we had accomplished with a handful of weapons against an entire company, 140 men at least, all of them well-armed, who had used bazookas against our positions, although their shots had been as wild and crazy as ours. The following day, after the soldiers had retreated, we had a conversation with Fidel in which he related euphorically how they had attacked Batista's forces in the region of Las Cuevas. I also learned of the deaths of some brave compañeros in the battle. Juventino Alorcón, one of the first to join the guerrilla band, Pastor Palomares, Yayo Castillo, and Ricoberto Oliva, a great fighter and great young man, as all of them were. The battle won by Fidel was much more important than our own, since it involved an attack on a defended garrison. They caused many casualties, and the soldiers retreated from that position the next day. Two days later we heard that an army communique had spoken of five or six dead. Later we learned that in addition to our compañero, whose body they had abused, we also had to mourn four or five murdered peasants. The sinister Marob Sosa had assumed they were responsible for the ambush because they had not reported our troop presence in the area to the army. The unfortunate peasants were murdered in their huts, which were then set on fire. These battles showed us how easy it was in certain conditions to attack columns on the march. 
Furthermore, we became convinced of the tactical correctness of always aiming at the head of the approaching troops in an attempt to kill the first one or the first few. The enemy troops would then refuse to advance, immobilizing the enemy force. Little by little, this tactic crystallized and finally it became so systematic that the enemy stopped entering the Sierra Maestra and scandalously soldiers even refused to march in the forward guard. Yet there had still not been enough battles for this tactic to be perfected. This battle more or less marked the moment of the withdrawal of Batista's troops from the Sierra Maestra. Thereafter, they only entered on rare occasions in daring feats by Sanchez Mosquera, the bravest, most murderous, and one of the most thieving of all of Batista's military chiefs. El Patojo A few days ago, a cable brought the news of the death of some Guatemalan patriots, among them Julio Roberto Carceras Valle. In this difficult profession of revolutionary, in the midst of class wars convulsing the entire continent, death is a frequent accident. But the death of a friend, a compañero during difficult hours, someone who has shared dreams of better times, is always painful. And Julio Roberto was a great friend. He was short and frail. For that reason, we called him El Padojo, Guatemalan slang meaning shorty or kid. El Patojo had witnessed the birth of a revolution while in Mexico and had volunteered to join us. Fidel, however, did not want to bring any more foreigners in the struggle for national liberation in which I had the honor to participate. A few days after the revolution triumphed, El Patojo sold his few belongings and, with only a small suitcase, appeared in Cuba. He worked in various branches of public administration and he was the first head of personnel of the Department of Industrialization of the National Institute of Agrarian Reform. But he was never happy with his work. El Patojo was seeking the liberation of his own country. The revolution had changed him profoundly, as it had all of us. The bewildered young man who had left Guatemala without fully understanding the defeat had now become a fully conscious revolutionary. The first time we met, we were on a train fleeing Guatemala a couple of months after the 1954 fall of Jocobo Arbenz. El Patojo was several years younger than I, but we immediately formed a lasting friendship. Together we made the trip from Chiapas to Mexico City. Together we faced the same problems. We were penniless, defeated, and forced to earn a living in an indifferent if not hostile environment. I bought a camera and together we undertook the illegal job of taking pictures of people in city parks. Our partner was a Mexican who had a small dark room where we developed the film. We got to know all of Mexico City, walking from one end to another, delivering the atrocious photographs we had taken. This is how we ate for several months. Little by little, the contingencies of revolutionary life separated us. I have already said that Fidel did not want to bring him to Cuba, not because of any shortcomings of his, but to avoid turning our army into a mosaic of nationalities. El Patojo had been a journalist, had studied physics at the University of Mexico, had left his studies and then returned to them without ever getting very far. He earned his living in various places, at various jobs, and never asked for anything. El Patojo was an introvert, highly intelligent, broadly cultured, sensitive. He matured steadily, and in his last moments was ready to put his great sensibilities at the service of his people. He belonged to the Guatemalan Labor Party and had disciplined himself in that life. He was developing into a fine revolutionary cadre. 
Revolution purifies people, improves and develops them, just as the experienced farmer corrects the deficiencies of crops and strengthens their good qualities. After he came to Cuba, we almost always lived in the same house, as was fitting for two old friends. But we no longer maintained our early intimacy in this new life. One day he told me he was leaving, that the time had come for him to do his duty. El Patojo had no military training. He simply felt that duty called him. He was going to his country to fight, gun in hand, to somehow reproduce our guerrilla struggle. It was then that we had one of our few long talks. I limited myself to recommending strongly these three things. Constant movement, constant weariness, and eternal vigilance. Movement. Never stay put. Never spend two nights in the same place. Never stop moving from one place to another. Weariness. At the beginning, be wary even of your own shadow. Friendly peasants, informants, guides, contacts, mistrust everything until you hold a liberated zone. Vigilance. Constant guard duty. Constant reconnaissance. Establishment of a camp in a safe place and above all, Never sleep beneath a roof. Never sleep in a house where you can be surrounded. This was the synthesis of our guerrilla experience. It was the only thing, along with a warm handshake, which I could give to my friend. El Patojo left, and in time came the news of his death. And not only El Patojo, but a group of compañeros with him. Once more, there is the bitter taste of defeat. How El Potojo died, we still do not know exactly, but we do know that the region was poorly chosen, that the men were not physically prepared, and that they were not sufficiently wary, and of course, that they were not sufficiently vigilant. The repressive army took them by surprise, virtually annihilating them. Once again, youthful blood has fertilized the fields of the Americas in order to make freedom possible. Another battle has been lost. We must make time to weep for our fallen compañeros while we sharpen our machetes. From the valuable and tragic experience of the cherished dead, we must firmly resolve not to repeat their errors, to avenge the death of each of them with many victories, and to achieve definitive liberation. When El Patojo left Cuba, he left nothing behind. He had few personal belongings to worry about. Old mutual friends in Mexico, however, brought me some poems he had written in a notebook and left there. They are the last verses of a revolutionary. They are, in addition, a love song to the revolution, to the homeland, and to a woman. To that woman, Apatoja knew and loved in Cuba, this final verse is addressed, this injunction. Take this. It is only my heart. Hold it in your hand. And when the dawn arrives... Open your hand and let the sun warm it. El Patoja's heart has remained among us in the hands of his beloved and in the loving hands of an entire people, waiting to be warmed beneath the sun of a new day, which will surely dawn for Guatemala and for all the Americas. Today, in the Ministry of Industry, where he left many friends, there is a small school of statistics named Julio Roberto Carceras Valle. In his memory, later, when Guatemala is free, his beloved name will surely be given to a school, a factory, a hospital, to any place where people fight and work to build a new society. A revolution begins. 
the history of the military takeover on March 10, 1952, the bloodless coup led by Fulgencio Batista, does not, of course, begin on the day of that barracks revolt. Its antecedents must be sought far back in Cuban history, further back than the intervention of U.S. Ambassador Sumner Wells in 1933, further back still than the Platt Amendment in 1901, much further back than the landing of the hero Narciso Lopez, direct envoy of the U.S. annexationists. We have to go back to John Quincy Adams' times, who, at the beginning of the 19th century, announced his country's policy regarding Cuba, that, like an apple torn from Spain, Cuba would fall into the hands of Uncle Sam. These are all links in a long chain of continental aggression that has not been aimed solely at Cuba. This tide, this ebb and flow of the imperial wave, is marked by the fall of democratic governments and the rise of new ones in the face of uncontainable pressure from the multitudes. History exhibits similar characteristics in all of Latin America. Dictatorial governments representing a small minority come to power through coup d'etat. Democratic governments with a broad popular base arise laboriously and frequently, even before coming to power, are already compromised by concessions they have had to make beforehand to survive. Although in this sense the Cuban Revolution marks an exception in all the Americas, it is necessary to point out the antecedents of this whole process. It was because of this process that the author of these lines, tossed here and there by the waves of social movements convulsing the Americas, had the opportunity to meet another Latin American exile, Fidel Castro. I met him on one of those cold Mexican nights. I remember that our first discussion was about international politics. By dawn, I was one of the future expeditionaries. But I would like to clarify how and why it was in Mexico that I met Cuba's current head of state. It happened in 1954, during a low point for democratic governments, when the last Latin American revolutionary democracy still standing, that of Jocobo Arvens, succumbed to cold, premeditated aggression conducted by the United States behind the smokescreen of its continental propaganda. The visible head of the aggression was U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Doles, who, by a strange coincidence, was also the lawyer for and a stockholder in the United Fruit Company, the main imperialist enterprise in Guatemala. I departed from Guatemala defeated, united with all Guatemalans by the pain, hoping, searching for a way to rebuild the anguished country's future. And Fidel came to Mexico looking for neutral ground in which to prepare his forces for the big effort. An internal split had already occurred after the assault on the Moncada military garrison at Santiago de Cuba. All the wicked-hearted split away, joined political parties or revolutionary groups which demanded a less sacrifice. New recruits were already joining the freshly formed ranks of what was called the July 26th Movement, named after the date of the 1953 attack on the Mokanda garrison. For those in charge of training these people under clandestine conditions in Mexico, an extremely difficult task was beginning. They were fighting against the Mexican government, agents of the FBI, and also those of Batista, three forces for whom money and buying people off were integral tools. In addition, we had to struggle against Rafael Trujillo's spies and against the poor selection of the human material, especially in Miami. Aided by a small, intimate team, Fidel Castro gave himself all his energy and his extraordinary work spirit entirely to the task of organizing the fighters who were to leave for Cuba. 
He almost never gave classes on military tactics since time for him was in short supply. The rest of us were able to learn from Commander Alberto Vallo. We found a ranch in Mexico where under Commander Vallo's direction and with myself as head of personnel, the final preparations were made, aiming to leave in March 1956. Around that time, however, two Mexican police units, both on Batista's payroll, were hunting Fidel Castro, and one of them had the good fortune in financial terms to capture him. But they made the absurd error, also financial, of not killing him. Within a few days, many of his followers were captured. Our ranch on the outskirts of Mexico City also fell into police hands, and we all went to jail. Some of us were imprisoned for fifty-seven days, but at no time did we lose our confidence in Fidel Castro. And Fidel did some things we could almost say compromised his revolutionary discipline for the sake of friendship. I remember explaining my specific case to him, a foreigner in Mexico illegally, with a whole series of charges against me. I told him that by no means should the revolution be held up on my account, that he could leave me behind, that I understood the situation and would try to fight wherever I was sent, and that the only effort on my behalf should be to have me sent to a nearby country and not to Argentina. I also remember Fidel's sharp reply, I will not abandon you. And he didn't, and precious time and money had to be diverted to get us out of the Mexican jail. Fidel's personal commitment toward people he holds in esteem is the key to the fanatical loyalty he inspires. Adherence to principles and adherence to the individual combine to make the rebel army an indefisible fist. The days passed as we worked clandestinely. After several months, we discovered there was a traitor in our ranks, whose name we did not know. From that moment, our preparations were necessarily feverish. The grama was put into shape at an extraordinary speed. We piled up as many provisions as we could get, very few in fact, along with uniforms, rifles, equipment, and two anti-tank guns with hardly any ammunition. Finally, on November 25, 1956, at 2 a.m., we set out to make Fidel's words, mocked by the official press, real. In 1956, we will be free or we will be martyrs. We left the port of Tushpan, an infernal heap of men and all types of equipment. We had very bad weather. We entered the Gulf of Mexico, and the whole boat assumed a ridiculous, tragic appearance. Men clutching their stomachs, anguish written on their faces, some with their heads in buckets, others lying on the deck, their clothes covered in vomit. With the exception of two or three sailors and four or five others, the rest of the eighty-two crew members were seasick. But after the fifth day, the general panorama improved slightly. The route we had chosen involved making a wide turn south of Cuba, bordering Jamaica and the Grand Cayman Islands, and landing close to the village of Niquiero in Oriente province. We were progressing quite slowly. On November 30th, we heard over the radio news of the uprising in Santiago de Cuba, started by our great Frank Pais, to coincide with the expedition's arrival. The following day, December 1st, at night, we set the bow on a straight line toward Cuba, desperately seeking the Cape Cruz lighthouse as we ran out of water, food, and fuel. On a black stormy night, we saw the light, but the labored advance of our boat made the final hours of the trip interminable. It was already daylight when we reached Cuba at Belec on Las Colorados Beach. A Coast Guard boat spotted us and radioed the Batista's army. We had just disembarked and entered the swamp in great haste and carried only vital supplies when enemy planes attacked us. 
Walking through the mangroves, we could not be seen by the planes, but the dictatorship's army was already on our trail. It took us several hours to get out of the swamp, where we had ended up due to the irresponsibility of a compañero who said he knew the way. We wound up on solid ground, lost, walking in circles. We were an army of shadows, ghosts, walking as if to the beat of some dark psychic mechanism. The crossing had been several days of constant hunger and seasickness, followed by three more days, terrible days, on land. In the early hours of December 5th, after a night march interrupted by fainting, exhaustion, and rest for the troops, we reached a point known, paradoxically, by the name of Alegria del Pio, Joy of the Pious. It was a small grove of trees, bordering a sugar cane field on one side and open to some valleys on the other, with dense woods starting farther back. Adrift The day after the surprise attack at Alegria del Pio, we were walking through trees when red earth alternated with dog-tooth rocks, recording from the cracks of solitary shots from all directions. Chao, a veteran of the Spanish Civil War, pointed out that moving as we were was a sure way to fall into an enemy ambush. He suggested we find an appropriate place to wait for nightfall. We managed to establish ourselves in a kind of cave that had a wide view to one side, but unfortunately it was impossible to cut off any enemy advance from the other. All five of us made an express promise to fight to the death. Those who made this pledge, Ramiro Valdez, Juan Almieda, Chao, Benitez, and the author of this account, all five survived the terrible experience of the defeat at Alegría del Pío and the subsequent battles. When night came, we set out again. I figured out which was the North Star, and for two days we guided ourselves eastward by it, heading toward the Sierra Maestra. A long time later, I learned that the star we used was not the North Star. It was simply good luck that had us moving in approximately the right direction. At dawn, we arrived at some cliffs. We could see the sea fifty meters below us, and the tempting sight of a pool of water which appeared to us to be fresh water. That night a swarm of crabs crawled around us, and driven by hunger, we killed a few, but since we could not build a fire, we swallowed their jelly-like parts raw, provoking a horrible thirst. After a lot of searching, we discovered a path by which we could descend to the water, but in the confusion of climbing back and forth, we lost sight of the pool and could only mitigate our thirst at some little puddles of rainwater gathered in holes on the rocks. We used the tiny asthma inhaler pump to extract the water, only a few drops for each of us. We marched on, demoralized. From time to time, a plane passed over the sea. Walking across the coastal rocks was exhausting, and at nightfall we found a small beach and bathed. Somewhat refreshed, we resumed our march. It was night, and, if I remember correctly, there was quite a good moon. Almiedo and I, marching in the lead, suddenly noticed that in one of the little huts fishermen put up at the sea's edge, there were shadows of sleeping men. We believed they were soldiers, but we were already too close to retrace our steps and instead advanced quickly. Almiedo was about to demand that they surrender when we had a happy surprise. They were three expeditionaries from the Gramma, Camilo Sinfuegos, Pancho Gonzalez, and Pablo Urato. At once we began to exchange experiences, and the little each of us knew concerning the other compañeros and the battle. Camilo's group offered us sugarcane stalks, which they had pulled up before fleeing. Their sweet juice somewhat appeased our stomachs. They were chewing avidly on crabs, 
they had found a way to quench their thirst by drawing water from the little holes in the rocks with hollowed-out sticks. We trekked on together, eight of us now, the number of surviving combatants of the Grama army. We had no information about whether there were other survivors. All we knew was that by continuing with the sea to our right, we were heading eastward, that is, toward the Sierra Maestra, where we were to take refuge. We ate the little prickly pears growing along the shore. We were tortured by thirst. One done, desperately tired, we stopped to doze, waiting for enough light to see how to continue. It seemed the cliffs we faced were too steep. As soon as it was light enough, we began to explore. Before our eyes appeared a big house of palm wood. My immediate instinct was to not get too close. The Nitas did not share my opinion and climbed over a barbed wire fence. Suddenly, I noticed in the dim light the silhouette of a uniformed man, an M1 rifle in his hands. I thought our last moments had come, at least for Benitez, whom I could not warn since he was closer to the man. Benitez made it nearly to the soldier's side, then wheeled around and returned to me, saying ingenuously that he had come back because he had seen a man with a shotgun and that it had not seemed wise to ask him any questions. Benitez and the rest of us felt as if we had been born again, but our odyssey did not end there. We realized it was necessary to scale the cliffs, which were not so steep there. In fact, we were approaching the zone called Ojo de Boy, Eye of the Ox, thus named because of a small river flowing down to the sea, cutting right through the cliffs. Before the end of our climb, we had time to find a cave, from which the entire quiet horizon could be observed. Then we saw some men come ashore from a navy skiff. We counted about thirty of them, and others embarked in what appeared to be a relief operation. We learned later that these were Lorenz men, that fearful murderer of the navy, who had accomplished his mission to execute a group of our compañeros and was relieving his men. The situation was not good. If we were discovered, we had not the slightest chance of escape. We passed the day without a mouthful, rigorously rationing our water in the eyepiece of a pair of field glasses so that each received exactly the same amount. At night we resumed our march, trying to put as much distance between ourselves and the area, hunger and thirst, our sense of defeat, and the imminence of palpable, unavoidable danger making us feel like cornered rats. After some wandering we came upon the river. Throwing ourselves to the ground, we drank avidly and at length, like horses, until our empty stomachs refused to absorb another drop. We filled our canteens and kept going. At dawn we reached the top of a small hill with some trees. We spent the day watching small, low-flying planes equipped with loudspeakers calling for our surrender. From time to time we heard unidentifiable shots from the woods. That night we took up our march, but the men increasingly refused to walk. We had no choice but to knock at the door of a peasant near the road at Puercas Gordas. We were warmly received, and the little hut became the scene of endless feasting. We ate until dawn surprised us, and it was not possible to leave. During the morning, peasants arrived who had learned of our presence. Filled with curiosity and friendly concern, they came to meet us, offer us food, or bring us gifts. But then, the little house sheltering us transformed into a kind of hell. First, Almieda was struck down by a diarrhea. Then, in a flash, eight thankless intestines gave proof of their ingratitude, poisoning our small refuge. Some of the men began to vomit. Pablo Hurtado, exhausted by days of marching, seasickness, and accumulated thirst and hunger, could no longer stand up. We determined to leave that night. 
The peasants told us they had heard news that Fidel was alive. They said they could take us to some place he might be with Crescentio Perez, but that we would have to leave our weapons and uniforms behind. Almieda and I kept our Thompson machine guns. The eight rifles and all the cartridges stayed in the peasants' hut for safekeeping. We divided into two groups, one of them three men, one of them four. Pablo Hurtado was so sick he stayed at the house. We had scarcely left when the owner gave in to the temptation of passing on the news to a friend, asking his advice concerning the best way to hide our arms. The latter convinced him he could sell them. They had dealings with a third person, and it was he who denounced us to the army. So, a few hours after our departure from the first hospitable Cuban hearth, there was an enemy raid. They took Pablo Hurtado prisoner and seized our weapons. We were seen in the house of an Adventist named Argelio Rosabal, known by everyone as Pastor. This compañero, hearing the ill-fated news, quickly contacted another peasant who knew the zone thoroughly and was a rebel sympathizer. That same night we left for another safer shelter. The peasant whom we met on that occasion was Guillermo Garcia. Today he is the commander of the Western Army and a member of the national leadership of our party. Subsequently, we stayed in several peasant homes, those of Carlos Mas, who later joined our ranks, Perucho Carrillo, and other compañeros. One morning at daybreak, after crossing the road to Pilon, we reached the farm of Mango Perez, Crescentio's brother. There we found all the surviving expeditionaries who were free, Fidel Castro, Universo Sanchez, Faustino Perez, Raúl Castro, Ciro Rigando, Efegenio Amajeres, René Rodríguez, and Armando Rodríguez. A few days later, we were joined by Morán, Crespo, Jolito Díaz, Calisto García, Calisto Morales, and Bermúdez. Our small troop was without uniforms and weapons. The two Thompsons were all we had salvaged from the disaster. Fidel reproached us bitterly. Throughout the campaign, and even today, I remember his admonition. You have not paid for the error you committed, because the price you paid for abandoning your weapons in such circumstances is your life. Your only hope of survival in the event of a head-on encounter with the army was your guns. To abandon them was criminal and stupid. Pino de Agua On August 29, 1957, we marched for several days with the aim of reaching the Pino de Agua sawmill. Fidel's plan was as follows. If there was a small garrison, to take it, if not, to make our presence known, and then he would continue with his troops toward Chivirico, while we lay in wait for Batista's army. They always came immediately in such cases, to make a show of strength and diminish the revolutionary effect of our presence on the peasants. In the days leading up to the Battle of Pino de Agua, during the march from Dos Brazos de Guayapo to the place of battle, several events transpired, whose principal actors were to play a role in the subsequent history of the revolution. One of those was the desertion of two local peasants, Manolo and Pupol Beton. They had joined the guerrilla ranks shortly before the Battle of El Uvaro and fought there. Today they were abandoning our camp. Later these two individuals were reincorporated into the guerrilla forces, and Fidel pardoned their treachery but they never rose above being semi-nomadic bandits. For some personal reason, Manolo killed Cristino Naranjo after the triumph of the revolution, 
Later, he succeeded in escaping his confines in La Cabaña Fortress and organized a small guerrilla band in the very place in the Sierra Maestra where he had fought alongside us. There he committed more misdeeds, such as murdering Pancho Tamayo, a brave compañero who had joined us during the first days of the revolution. Eventually, a group of peasants captured Manolo and his brother Pupo. Both of them were shot in Santiago. A painful accident also happened. A compañero named Roberto Rodriguez was disarmed for insubordination. He was very undisciplined, and the squadron lieutenant took his weapons, exercising a disciplinary right. Roberto Rodriguez got hold of the revolver of a compañero and committed suicide. A small argument took place because I was opposed to granting him military honors, whereas the men considered him one of the fallen. I argued that committing suicide in conditions such as ours was a criminal act, independent of the good qualities of the compañero. After a few insubordinate stirrings, we finally held a wake for him without granting him honors. Two days later, we sent a small detachment to Minas de Baisito to make a show of strength there, since it was September 4th. The group was commanded by Captain Ciro Ridondo, who came back with a prisoner, Leonardo Barro. This same Barro was to play an important role in the ranks of the counter-revolution. He remained our prisoner for a good while, until one day he told me the miserable story of his mother's illness, which I believed. I tried in passing to convince him to make a political stand, I'd propose that he take a bus, see his mother in Havana, and then demand asylum in an embassy, proclaiming his unwillingness to fight against us anymore and denouncing Batista's regime. He objected, saying he could not denounce the regime his brothers were fighting for, and we agreed that he should limit himself in requesting asylum to declaring that he didn't want to fight anymore. We sent him off with four compañeros. They had rigorous orders not to allow him to see anyone on the way since he knew many of the peasants who had visited us at our camp. These men did not follow their orders. They allowed themselves to be seen by many people. They even held a meeting in which Barrault was celebrated as a liberated prisoner and a supposed sympathizer. They were intercepted by Batista's troops, and the four compañeros were murdered. We never knew for sure if Barrault participated in this crime. We do know that he immediately installed himself at Minas del Boisito, put himself under the orders of the assassin Sanchez Mosquero and began to identify, among those who came to do their market shopping, the peasants who had been in contact with our guerrilla group. My error cost the people of Cuba countless victims. Several days after the triumph of the revolution, Barro was captured and executed. Soon after the incident, we went down to San Pablo de Yao, where we were welcomed with open arms. We occupied it peacefully for several hours and began to make contacts, meeting many people from the area. We loaded as much merchandise as possible into trucks provided for us by the same merchants who sold us supplies on credit. During that period, we paid with bonds. It was on that occasion that we met our great compañera, Lydia Doce, who was later charged with the column's various contact tasks until her death in Havana. We also witnessed in those days a range of partings for different motives. A compañero, a good fighter, was expelled for drunkenness during the expedition to Yao while he was on guard. Another, Jorge Sotos, left his position as squadron leader and went to Miami with a letter of recommendation from Fidel. In reality, Sotos had never adapted himself to the Sierra Maestra, 
and his men disliked him because of his despotic nature. His career had many ups and downs. During Ubet Mato's time, he betrayed us and was sentenced to twenty years imprisonment. With the complicity of a jailer, he fled to Miami. He had finished the preparations for a private incursion into Cuban territory when he died, apparently electrocuted in an accident. Among the other compañeros who left us at that time was Marcelo Fernandez, coordinator of the July 26 movement in the cities. He returned to work in his area of responsibility after a long stay with us in the Sierra Maestra. After these incidents, we resumed our march toward Pino del Agua, arriving there on September 10th. Pino del Agua is a hamlet built around a sawmill on a ridge of the Sierra Maestra. During that period, it was managed by a Spaniard and had a number of workers, but not one soldier. We occupied the hamlet that night, and Fidel let his itinerary become known to local residents, calculating that the news would filter through to the army. We conducted a small divisionary maneuver, and while Fidel's column continued to march toward Santiago in full view of all, we detoured during the night and laid an ambush for the enemy. In charge of our provisions, as always, was Oltomayo, who lived in the region at Cuevas de la Paladero. We distributed the troops in such a way that all roads would be under surveillance. We planned to withdraw along the road from Yao to Pico Verde after the 